Hello, and welcome to the Promenade Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Reyes, and we're coming to you here from the friendly studios at the SLR Broadcast Center. On this episode of the podcast, we will be talking about Apollo 13, since this month, April 2020, marks the 50th anniversary of the mission. And just like our Apollo 8 episode, we're going to be using period news footage and news coverage to help tell our story. Now, for a lot of us, we're only familiar with the flight of Apollo 13 because of the 1995 Ron Howard film of the same name, Apollo 13. And going through all of this audio, you're going to discover that the film took historic license versus how it was actually being reported and what was being reported. Now, the first example of this would be how the crew replacement was handled. Now, in the film... It was two days prior to launch when they informed Jim Lovell, as played by Tom Hanks, that Charlie Duke had come down with the measles and that Ken Mattingly had never had the measles and that while him and Fred Hayes are on the moon, he may be getting the measles while he's in the command module by himself. And the decision was made to replace Mattingly with Jack Swigert. And that would be this clip here. Schedule for it, 0900 hours tomorrow. Uh, that's not going to work, Walter. Why? Fredo and I are going to be going over the lunar surface experiments tomorrow, and Ken's going to be back in the simulator. We're going to be going over the flight plan tonight as well. But to pay a visit to this beautiful machine after you're hard down. Thanks. Jim, we've got a problem. I just got some blood work back from the lab. Charlie Duke has the measles. So we need a new backup. You've all been exposed to it. Well, I've had the music. Ken Mattingly has it. You, you want to break up my crew two days before the launch? When we can predict each other's moves, when we can read the, read the tone of each other's voices. Ken Mattingly will be getting seriously ill precisely when you and Hayes will be ascending from the lunar surface to rendezvous with him. Jim, that's a lousy time for a fever. Uh, now, now, look, Jack Swigert has been out of the loop for weeks. He's fully qualified to fly this mission. He's a fine pilot, but when was the last time he was in a simulator? I'm sorry, Jim, I understand how you feel. Now, we can do one of two things here. We can either scrub Mattingly and go with Swigert, or we can bump all three of you to a later mission. I've trained for the Fraumora Highlands. And this is Flight Surgeon Horse, Deke. Jim, if you hold out for Ken, you will not be on Apollo 13. It's your decision. feeling when they started doing all the blood tests that uh... I mean I know it's their ass if I get sick up there but I mean Jesus (sighs) 
Swigert, he'll he'll be fine. He's uh, he's strong. It'll be a hell of a mission, one for the books. You sure about this, Jim? I mean, why don't I go upstairs and talk to Deke? I'm sure we can work this out. This was my call. Must have been a tough one. Look, I don't have the measles. I'm not going to get the measles. Ken, wait up. Now, as you can see in that clip, that's how Hollywood portrayed the events. Now, this next set of clips are the network news broadcasts, or to clarify, the American network news broadcast so the cbs evening news with walter cronkite the huntley brinkley report which was the predecessor of the nbc nightly news and the abc nightly news with frank reynolds which was the predecessor of world news tonight in reality they knew about a week before the flight that charlie duke had come down with the measles so they had an entire week to make the decision, and in two days prior to launch, that's when they made the decision. So that's going to be these sets of clips now. ...is threatening man's next mission to the moon. Dr. Charles Berry, director of medical operations, said today all three Apollo 13 astronauts were exposed yesterday to German measles. Berry said the crew, James Lovell, Thomas Mattingly, and Fred Hayes, are now in good physical condition, but the results of tests for German measles will not be known until Wednesday. Those results could postpone the launching, scheduled for Saturday, and if that happens, the next available launch date is May 9th. The case of German measles to which the astronauts were exposed was contracted by Charles Duke, a member of the backup crew. On the technical side, a fuel pressure problem has been solved, and the countdown is continuing. There is at least the possibility tonight that a case of German measles could delay the flight of Apollo 13. One of the backup astronauts has come down with the German measles, and all three of the prime astronauts have been exposed to it. If any of the astronauts is going to develop the disease, it'll show up on Wednesday. Apollo 13 is scheduled to be launched on Saturday. Say the three astronauts are in good health for their flight to the moon Saturday, but they're a little worried because yesterday they were exposed to a child who had German measles. And so they're being tested now to see if there is any chance of their having measles on the moon. Blood tests revealed that the Apollo 13 astronauts have satisfactory, satisfactory immunity to German measles, although a member of the backup crew does have the disease. The results are not final and more tests will be taken, but as of now, all plans are on for Saturday's scheduled blast-off for the moon. The countdown for Apollo 13 continued today, but it's not altogether certain it will go off as scheduled on Saturday. The astronauts have been exposed to German measles. Lovell has been declared immune, but Mattingly and Hayes have developed antibodies in their blood, and it won't be known until Thursday whether this means they are immune or have contracted the disease. Apollo 13 is go for launch this Saturday. 
despite the fact that all three of the astronauts were recently exposed to German measles. NASA physicians obviously believe there is no danger that the astronauts will develop the disease during their flight. Apollo 13 is scheduled to leave for the moon on Saturday, but there are complications and there may be a delay because one of the astronauts may be about to have German measles. All three were exposed to it last week and it's highly infectious. Two were found by the doctors to be immune. The third, command module pilot Thomas Mattingly, is not immune. And so the doctors figure that with an incubation period of about 15 days, he would develop the measles just about when he was circling the moon alone. There is, therefore, a possibility of delay or of replacing Mattingly with another astronaut from the backup crew. But he is not as intensively trained for this flight with this crew. It's a mild disease, beginning with a rash, soreness in the nose and the eyes, swelling of the lymph glands in the neck, the head, and a fever. It's over in a few days, but for Mattingly, those would be the wrong few days. If they have to postpone the flight a month, it will cost somewhere close to a million dollars. A million dollar case of measles. The most expensive measles in the history of the world. Good night for NBC News. If Apollo 13 cannot be launched Saturday afternoon, it can't go until May 9th. That's because of the position of the moon and lighting conditions at the Apollo's planned landing site. To postpone the flight would cost around a half million dollars, but a case of German measles could cause a postponement and cost the American taxpayers just that much. David Schumacher reports from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. A debate is underway within NASA over whether to postpone Apollo 13 a month or replace a member of the crew. The background is this. Over the weekend, one of the backup astronauts, Charles Duke, came down with what appeared to be German measles. Blood tests indicate two members of the prime crew, Lovell and Hayes, have adequate immunity. But Ken Mattingly seems to have no resistance to the disease at all. The only way doctors could guarantee that he will not get sick during the flight would be if he got sick before and recovered. For the past two days, everyone has been watching Mattingly closely, hoping he would get sick, but so far he's refused to cooperate. Meanwhile, tonight, doctors are even reassessing the possibility that Duke did not have German measles at all, but some less serious infection. While awaiting the results, officials are balancing two alternatives. The difficulty of keeping the complex Saturn Apollo ready to fly for a month when Mattingly will be out of danger and the moon will be back in position for another launch attempt, or replacing Mattingly with backup astronaut John Swiger Jr. Swiger's been getting ready all day, but there's considerable resistance to breaking up a crew that is trained together. Additional simulator time has been scheduled to give Swiger a chance to work with Lovell and Hayes, and particularly to prove to Lovell that he's ready to go. A final decision must be made by Friday night. David Schumacher, CBS News, Kennedy Space Center, Florida. $375 million mission to the moon, a quarter of a million miles away, remains in peril today by a childhood disease. Walter Conkite reports from the Kennedy Space Center. The countdown goes on and the weather outlook now is good. But a big question remains about whether Apollo 13 will be launched toward the moon on Saturday. Astronaut Thomas Mattingly, he's known as Ken, has been just about eliminated from the crew unless there is a postponement. It has been confirmed that backup astronaut Charles Duke has German measles, Mattingly has been exposed, and he is not immune. 
No official announcement, but doctors have recommended that he not go. This leaves two alternatives. Postpone the flight until May 9th at a cost of several hundred thousand dollars, or substitute backup crewman John Swigger Jr. for Mattingly as command module pilot. That's the fellow who stays in orbit while Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes land and walk on the moon. The decision's expected tomorrow. Meanwhile, Ken Mattingly, he's the one without much hair here, has been briefing Swigert, a 38-year-old civilian space rookie on flight plans. And Swigert has been working out in simulation equipment here at Kennedy Space Center, trying to develop the kind of teamwork with Lovell and Hayes that normally takes months. It's quite an assignment. And here with me now to talk about what's involved is former astronaut and now a veteran of our CBS News team for these launches, Wally Shira. Wally, how big a problem is it to put a man in at the last minute, two days before a flight like this, who hadn't been training with the prime crew? I don't think it is a problem now, Walter. We, we had all sorts of agonies in the older days. You recall we said we couldn't break up the team, we couldn't put a new man in at the last minute, and we meant it. We had uh, launch schedules that were every two months. Now we have a case where we have six months. Swagger's been working for one long time. He worked with me in the support crew role with Apollo 7, which was way back in 68. The other thing is that uh, the command module pilot is really a loner. He, he has the task of minding the store while the other two are off, doing very close teamwork with the land, landing on the moon. So this, too, relieves the constraint of changing that particular man at the last minute. I frankly wouldn't want to change Hayes at the last minute in contrast. Well, now, Lovell's worked with Mattingly quite intimately here for a year. Isn't he likely to feel, oh, heck, let's wait a month and let Mattingly get the flight to? Well, that has to develop, but I think back of that, uh, this is the, the, the tremendous task the, command, the commander of the mission has, is to reflect those personal feelings against the, the exigencies of finance, the economics, the, the tremendous cost to delay this mission another month. That's not a cheap thing to do. A lot of people are are brought on at the last minute to do these various tasks. Uh, a lot of people brought down from Houston, in this sense, from all over the country. The teams are deployed all over the world now for this particular maneuver. So we're aware of all of these things. Most of us have been all over the world on the surface looking at these tracking stations. They're all prepared to go. And the typical statement is the ranges go. How about the crew? So Thank you, Wally. And Harry Reasoner, that's the way it is. That's the Cape today. The flight of Apollo 13 is a giant question mark tonight. Doctors confirm beyond doubt today that astronaut Thomas K. Mattingly has been exposed to the German measles. Because his resistance to the disease is extremely low, the doctors recommended that he not make the flight. The space agency will almost certainly go along with that recommendation. John Swigert is the backup pilot, and whether the flight goes on Saturday hinges on his ability to be ready in time. More on the story from ABC's science editor, Jules Bergman at Cape Kennedy. It's almost a soap opera script with a life and death plot. Can a backup pilot, Jack Swigert, who hasn't had all the final training, fly on the most complex lunar mission we've yet attempted and do everything just right? Can Swigert substitute for Ken Mattingly, who's worked for two years with Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes, three men who are now so close they understand each other's every gesture and eye motion with no words needed? Swigert, on the right, held long talks today with Mattingly and other key flight personnel, and then flew many simulator missions with Lovell and Hayes. Swigert was tested in every step. 
Beyond this pilot's proficiency rating quiz, the real issue is this. Can Swigert get up to speed in 48 hours on many critical items the backup crew doesn't know? Jim Lovell wants to wait to scrub the flight for a month so Mattingly can get over the measles he may get and fly. There are three launch days in May, but only one this Saturday in April. Chief astronaut Deke Slayton, who came up with the idea of putting Swigert in, is the man in the fire. He's responsible for isolating crews before a flight. Had the astronauts been isolated for 21 days, as the medics wanted, the measles threat would never have developed. Today, Dr. Tom Payne, the space agency chief, told me NASA will get new isolation rules, either isolating the crews and everybody who works with them in the weeks before a flight or finding new medical ways of protection. Payne will make the final decision on the launch tomorrow after talking to spacecraft commander Lovell and other officials. It's 50-50. This is Jules Bergman, ABC News at Cape Kennedy. We're looking down on Apollo 13 from the top of the launch tower. And as of now, that big bird is all set to take off for the moon on schedule at 2.13 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. That was firmed up this afternoon when top space officials decided to substitute backup astronaut John Swigert as command module pilot for Ken Mattingly, who's been exposed to German measles. The decision came after Swigert had gone through a battery of last-minute tests to determine how well he could team up with the other two crewmen, Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes. That decision involved a good deal of agonizing, and at a news conference, NASA Administrator Thomas Paine talked about how it was reached. The evidence is very substantial that uh, about the time that we would have been conducting the lunar operations, uh, that uh, Lieutenant Commander Mattingly would indeed uh, be coming down with uh, symptoms of the measles such that uh, his capacity for successfully carrying out the command module operations are called into question. I went to discuss the question with Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, first in a private meeting with Jim for uh, about a half an hour, discussing all the aspects of the mission and his feelings about it. And then Fred Hayes joined us and we continued the discussion for perhaps another uh, 10 minutes. Uh, I can report to you that the recommendation of everyone to whom I talked, both in the meeting and in the subsequent meeting with the two astronauts, was a unanimous recommendation that Apollo 13 be launched tomorrow morning. Weather prediction, not as good as yesterday, but better than this morning. <laughs> we have a front that is fairly stationary, approximately 100 miles to the north. We do not expect it to move in. We do not expect squalls, but we could have some middle layer clouds and some precipitation tomorrow. However, we feel, based on a prediction, that the weather conditions will meet our mission rules. Incidentally, if there should be a postponement tomorrow, the new launch date would be May 9th. The space officials say that Mattingly would be put back on the crew. Mattingly, of course, is disappointed and depressed, but they say he's taking it philosophically, and there's talk tonight that he will be given assignment on a future space-moon mission. This mission itself, temporarily overshadowed by the excitement over the crew in a case of German measles, now comes front and center itself. Unlike its two predecessors, which touched down on fairly even terrain, Apollo 13 is going into very rugged lunar highland areas, 
It's going to rest there for 33 hours, during which time Lovell and Hayes will take two long moonwalks, conducting scientific experiments, setting up a scientific space station, and hopefully sending back the first color television pictures from the moon's surface. Swigert will be circling overhead in the command ship. CBS News coverage of tomorrow's launch begins at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This is Water Crime Guide, Kennedy Space Center, Florida. The space agency said today that Apollo 13 will be launched tomorrow on schedule unless the weather turns bad. They decided to drop astronaut Thomas Mattingly from the mission because he had been exposed to German measles and is likely to catch the disease. And it substituted for him John Swigert, a rookie who has been practicing intensively for the last day and a half to meet such a contingency. The announcement was made at Cape Kennedy. I can report to you that the recommendation of everyone to whom I talked, both in the meeting and in the subsequent meeting with the two astronauts, uh, was a unanimous recommendation that Apollo 13 be launched tomorrow morning. The decision may have been unanimous, but there is no question about the attitude of the spacecraft commander, James Lovell. He argued today that Mattingly, with German measles, would still be preferable as a crew member. Lovell's argument was made without prejudice to the new man, John Swigert, a member of the backup crew. For the past two days, Swigert has been practicing spaceship operations, operations where three men must work as one in a very intense run-through. He has performed well against an extremely tough deadline. Nobody pretends that Swigert has had as much practice as the man he replaces. And to make the trip easier for him, they have dropped some of the photographic tasks assigned to his job tasks which previously had been assigned is quite significant. In the meantime, the weather here is good, and the forecast for tomorrow's launch is for clouds, possibly some rain, but they do not expect the squally weather which could delay the launch. And the preparations go on. The new crew of astronauts will be here tomorrow morning, scheduled to lift off just after two in the afternoon Eastern time. The decision to go ahead with the mission seems to represent NASA management more than it does the astronauts themselves. And there is no question that the pressures on James Lovell and Fred Hayes have increased, not to mention the pressures on the new man, John Swigert. But these pilots are superbly trained men taught to work well together. And if the weather holds, they lift off from here tomorrow on Apollo 13. Apollo 13 is scheduled to be launched at 2.13 p.m. Eastern Time. NBC News begins live television coverage of the event at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Space Agency decided today that backup astronaut Jack Swigert has done his homework and done it well enough to permit Apollo 13 to be launched on schedule tomorrow. Swigert will take the place of Thomas Mattingly, who proved to have not enough resistance to German measles to which he had been exposed. NASA Administrator Thomas Paine flew to Cape Kennedy to announce the GO decision. Uh, I can report to you that the recommendation of everyone to whom I talked, both in the meeting and in the subsequent meeting with the two astronauts, uh, was a unanimous recommendation that Apollo 13 be launched tomorrow morning. Uh, considering the matter and pondering all that had gone on at the meetings, it was my final decision that we will uh, launch Apollo 13 tomorrow morning uh, weather and other conditions permitting.
Apollo 13, a new and dangerous voyage to one of the oldest areas of the moon and the riskiest lunar landing yet attempted, lies ahead for Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes. From the moon, learning is the motto the three astronauts have picked for their 10-day mission. Jim Lovell, 42, Navy captain on his fourth space trip, the man with more hours in space than anybody else, and two rookies, Fred Hayes, 36, civilian NASA test pilot who'll moonwalk with Lovell. And backup command pilot Jack Swigert, 38. They'll attempt to land in Frau Maro, a rough, hilly highland area similar to It's littered by debris from a mammoth meteorite impact, offering chunks of the moon five billion years old. Lovell and Hayes will do two moonwalks, lasting up to five hours each, in placing a scientific station. A color TV camera will show us live much of what they do. To solve the mystery of whether the moon is dead or has a hot core, as the Earth does, Hayes will drill two 10-foot deep holes with a battery-powered electric drill and slip a series of heat-measuring devices in the holes to tell scientists the precise temperature differences below the surface. On their second moonwalk, they'll hike two miles to a high-rimmed crater to get pictures and samples of how it got there and what has happened to it. And if it all seems routine, if it seems to lack the wild suspense and drama of Apollo 11, perhaps the in men who are willing to press on, facing new dangers for new learning, even if they weren't there first. This is Jules Bergman, ABC News, at Pad 39, Cape Kennedy. Jules Bergman and I will bring you coverage of the Apollo 13 launch tomorrow, beginning at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. As you can hear in those clips, the media knew and NASA knew up to a week prior to the launch regarding the situation with the German measles. That was the evening news leading up to the launch. Next, we actually have some audio of the day of the launch, courtesy of CBS News. Now, for those of you wondering why I tend to be CBS heavy, it's not because I'm playing favorites, it's unfortunately CBS of the three big American networks was the only one to actually save the tapes of all of the Apollo missions. NBC, believe it or not, recorded over their coverage of the landing of Apollo 11. So if you go onto YouTube, that's not the TV coverage. That's not David Brinkley, Chet Huntley, and Frank McGee. Those are the NBC radio guys doing that. ABC did save some, but for the most part, CBS saved everything. And, well, that that's on this side of the Atlantic. The BBC was even worse because their whole, their 10-hour coverage of the landing of Apollo 11 has been lost to time because they recorded over it. So we don't know what they did. Because there have been reconstructions of stuff, putting it together, but that their coverage was lost to time. So as I said, so the reason we're playing Cronkite a lot is because that's what has survived. As I said, this next clip is, well, not so much a clip as it is the coverage of the day of the launch of Apollo 13. Out there on launch pad 39A, John Swigert is squeezed in between Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes in the cabin of Apollo 13. Swigert got there after a week of uncertainty, climaxed with his promotion to the prime crew, replacing Ken Mattingly. But the day the uncertainty is gone, 
The weather is reasonably good, and the countdown ticking off for man's third voyage to the surface of the moon. Good morning, or good afternoon, as it is now, at the Kennedy Space Center, Florida. It's just uh, 12.32 p.m. on this uh, Saturday, and at 2.13 p.m., one hour and 40 minutes from now, uh, they, Apollo 13 is scheduled to blast off for the moon. The astronauts came out of the uh, quarters where they live here at the Cape before takeoff for the moon uh, earlier this morning at uh, about 11.30 uh, this morning. They had gotten up at 9 o'clock. Uh, they checked out in that uh, last uh, quick uh, examination for health. Nobody has come down with the measles again now. The crew that's scheduled to go, they're all said to be immune. They uh, had a good breakfast, the usual steak and eggs for breakfast. Uh, then they transferred to, to the transfer van, as it's called, made the drive to the uh, spaceport, to the moonport, to the big rocket that will take them on the way toward the moon today. The fifth such departure for the moon, uh, the third to attempt a landing on the moon. They arrived at just uh, 11.30 at the Apollo access arm up at the 320-foot level. Uh, Lovell entered the spacecraft first. He sits in the far left-hand seat. And then uh, about uh, six minutes later, Fred Hayes, a space rookie, uh, got into the spacecraft. He sits over in the right-hand seat. And uh, then the man who didn't expect to be going to the moon today, uh, but uh, uh, won a trip by the fact that Ken Mattingly, scheduled to be the command module pilot, uh, is susceptible to measles. He might have gotten them in space, uh, so he was scrubbed from the mission, and now Swigert's going. Well, he finally entered the spacecraft uh, to sit in the middle seat. We're seeing the van on the road before its actual arrival at pad 39A, as it passes the uh, vehicle assembly building, said to be the largest building in the world in total uh, cubic footage. It's where they assemble these two, uh, these uh, Saturn spacecraft. And then on the way to the uh, launch pad itself. Wally Shira is with me for our report today, as he has been for these recent Apollo missions, all of the Apollo missions since he himself uh, took the first one out for us and uh, found out that the Apollo spacecraft works. And, uh, Very well. You've been helping us uh, now since Apollo 11. Wally, it must be quite a thing for Jack Swigert, this 38-year-old fellow from Denver who was a backup command module pilot, hadn't even been scheduled to make a flight uh, eventually to the moon, although anticipated that backup pilots usually get a chance a little later on, I guess. But he wasn't scheduled. And then uh, in the middle of this last week, why he, he got uh, the bid to make this ride. There they are as they got to that 320-foot level. That's probably the most exciting part of the whole thing, that this phase of launch day where you go up to the access arm to enter that spacecraft. Of course, the real, the real, real proof of whether you really have that ride or not, in this case where Jack is the substitute, I should say a very good substitute, is when those liftoff arms, liftoff arms release, then you know that's your ride, because there's no <laughs> way of changing seats after that. Well, he doesn't, uh, he won't be sure of that for another couple of hours yet, but uh, it looks like he's going to make it. The weather here is not perfect. There is a high haze, 
and they're predicted to be a cloud cover of 2,500 to uh, 33,000 or 3,500 feet uh, at launch time. But that's not uh, a constraint to launch. It, uh, although the weather requirements have been considerably tightened since we watched Apollo 12 go up uh, through the clouds with the lightning bouncing around it, and as we know, knocking out the power supply very briefly, uh, the weather requirements are much tighter. But uh, none of the conditions which would prevent a launch seem to be prevailing in the area now. This looks quite good. I'm real pleased. The, the problem that uh, comes up with the thunder area is that you get the vertical flows through the heavy cumulus clouds, and that static mm -hmm. charge is what did it, of course. Yeah. Uh, this time it's sort of a, as you say, a haze is a very good description. It's a stratus flat layer. So there, there should be no problem with this at all. Well, we've got to look for those great big... Uh, cotton candy That's clouds, the uh, the and then the ones that make the anvils up there. Those are the really bad ones. Those oh, are the yeah. cumulonimbus, oh, very are good. the big ones, with, uh, <laughs> with the, uh, with the uh, cut-off tops, the hammerheads, and then the fluffy ones are kind of trade wind clouds that uh, really uh, can't do a lot of harm, but uh, could indicate problems. That, uh, that's the indication. Very right. Well, this is to be man's fifth trip to the moon, the third to make a landing, the flight of Apollo 13. Jim Lovell is the uh, commander of this mission. He's the most experienced of all of our astronauts. He's been up three times before and been to the moon once before, although he didn't make a landing that time. Fred Hayes, uh, who is the lunar module pilot and will be going to the moon's surface and making two long walks uh, with Lovell on the moon, is a uh, space rookie. Uh, he comes from... Uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, married and three children on Houston. Uh, Jack Swigert is the man who now finds himself as a command module pilot and will be circling around the moon for 33 and a half hours alone waiting for the uh, lunar module to come back from the surface of the moon. He comes from Denver, is 38 years old and uh, just got this ride this time because of that case of the measles. Measles that uh, Ken Mattingly, who was scheduled to be the command module pilot who'd worked two years preparing for this flight, uh, hasn't gotten yet, but according to the medical tests, could get and has been uh, exposed to the measles. And since he might come down with them while he's up there on that flight, the doctors, uh, as just uh, yesterday morning, finally ruled him out of the flight. And uh, at that time, the space agency officials decided that Jack Swigert as they say, practically wrote the book on the command module and knows about as much about it as anybody, spent a lot of time in the simulator and uh, has more jet flying hours, I think, than any of the active astronauts today. He's a very experienced man. Well, he, for two days, had been going through the simulated missions with the prime crew uh, with a lot of help from Ken Mattingly, who took his terrible disappointment with very good grace, and uh, he qualified. Jack Swigert qualified to go and will go on this mission today, scheduled to take off one hour and 32 minutes from now. Like everybody else, uh, we at CBS were caught by surprise by the sudden change which put uh, Swigert on the Apollo 13 crew. Uh, my colleague David Schumacher had interviewed the three original crewmen, uh, Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and uh, Ken Mattingly, but he didn't have a chance to talk with Swigert. It really hadn't been thought it would be necessary. Backup crewmen never have been substituted this late in a program before. There have been substitutes, but over before, oh, two months before the flight actually took place. However, we've located an interview 
that was made with Swagger, done in 1968 when he was on a support crew. That's the third line backup crew, uh, third string behind the backup crew itself. For the first manned Apollo flight, that was Apollo 7, commanded by Wally Sharaf here. And Swigert was asked about the duties of a support crewman, including whether they get a chance to work out in the simulators. A, a large part in our, uh, in our work, uh, for example, in the generation of the malfunction procedures, this is something that we want to verify in the simulators to make sure that the procedures that we have uh, drawn up are accurate and correct. Uh, the, some of the other uh, duties of the support crew involve the checklist, uh, which active participation in the simulators is, uh, uh, is, a, is a mandatory. Do, uh, do you yourself have a flight preference? That's known as a leading question. <laughs> well, naturally, uh, I hope to make uh, one of the lunar flights. Uh, but of course, right now, my interest is getting this first flight off the ground. I remember we had a coach uh, tell us we play them one at a time. And of course, this is the philosophy I'm following right now. What is your own personal philosophy about why you think it's important for man to go into space? Well, the requirements, uh, uh, for man to go into space are much like uh, uh, those that existed at the time that Columbus set out on his voyage to uh, an unknown world. But one of the things that we may learn from uh, our visit to the moon uh, will provide us with answers to many of what are now theories as to the origin of our solar system. Did you get a chance to actually work with uh, Chuck Swigert uh, when he was backup for that Apollo 7? Uh, or not backup, so. he was the uh, third string. But Jack was uh, the man who, uh, I would say, is probably one of the most eager of the bunch. Whenever I got in the simulator, if all seats weren't filled, meaning with Cunningham and Isley, Jack was right on the sill climbing in with me. And he that's how he got all his simulator time, just by being that eager. He's a bachelor, as Ken Manningly is, by the way. And uh, as a result, I think Jack's spare time really was spent inside that seminar whatever time it's not the get. way i hear it from houston <laughs> very good he's a, a very popular fellow with the whole astronaut crew when it became known that he might be making this flight uh, here when all the talk began tuesday and wednesday uh while everybody felt awfully badly for ken mattingly after working so darn hard and their hearts went out to him uh, they did say that there wasn't a better man to be standing there next in line and uh, Jack Swigert. Well, I was real pleased for Jack on this because I had worked with him. He worked so hard for us in Apollo 7 days and as you said, wrote the book. All of the malfunctions that can occur in the command module, Jack actually traced through logic patterns down to where it was a logical way of solving these problems. That's called malfunction procedures. If you ever had something like that for your automobile, you wouldn't even get in it. It's so complicated. <laughs> nice looking guy. 38 years old. I can understand why he'd be a popular bachelor. Uh, he's only, there are only three bachelors, I think, of the 55 active astronauts so today, and right. two of them now have been uh, scheduled for this flight. It's uh, interesting uh, Yeah. Uh, old football player, and he had his first flying lesson when he was 14 years old, so he's really been at it a long time. Before the measles onslaught, uh, I suspect that few people knew 
which astronauts actually were slated to fly Apollo 13. You were not expected to until the excitement of the mission begins to develop. Now, though, we all know their names. Uh, we still don't know perhaps uh, very much about them. And David Schumacher can give us some insight into the three men and into Ken Mattingly, the fellow who now gets left behind. David? The crew used to joke about Apollo 13, the unlucky number. Jim Lovell, the commander, is anything but superstitious. Fred Hayes, the lunar module pilot, said he wished they could launch on a Friday the 13th. But when Ken Mattingly was bumped, the laughter turned a little bitter. And the new member of the crew, Jack Swigert, was much too busy for jokes. Like Mattingly, Swigert is a bachelor whose life has revolved around flying since he was a youngster. He delivered papers to earn money for his flying lessons. As an astronaut, Swigert has been more serious than in his college days at the University of Colorado, when everyone called him Big Swig, and he was president of his fraternity. In the two days before his flight, Swigger took the toughest hazing of his life, proving to a frankly skeptical Jim Lovell that he was ready. It came so fast he didn't even have time to call his family back in Denver. His mother learned the news from a CBS reporter, said only recently her son had told her not to worry. There was no chance he would be substituted in the last two weeks before a mission. Jim Lovell resisted the change in his crew for understandable reasons, reasons that had nothing to do with Swigert personally. He had a good deal of pride in the two young rookies he had trained with so long. With more time and space than any other man, he knows just how much pressure is involved in a flight, and he likes things done without excitement. Lovell's easygoing manner has always been a delight to his co-workers, who quickly tire of prima donna pilots. Whether the complexity of a lunar landing mission or dealing with reporters, Lovell takes everything in stride. You feel ready to land on the moon now? I certainly do. I feel ready to land on the moon. Air. No problems about that. Lovell jokes about a part-time job he holds, physical fitness consultant to the president. He says he qualified by doing nothing longer than any other astronaut, meaning his record two-week endurance flight locked up inside Gemini 7. It is the time Lovell has been forced to spend away from his family, his 15-year-old son Jay calls him the traveling salesman, that prompted Lovell to announce that this would be his last flight. That, and a desire to open the way for younger astronauts. Well, I personally think this flight is very special for me. I think it's an accumulation of uh, the work that I have done in the space program. It's certainly utilizing the skills that I have learned since I've been here. And I think it has a lot to offer to the scientific community and the further exploration of, uh, of our universe. You didn't really have to stop flying, did you? Uh, no, uh, I made that announcement basically because we have a lot of people in our flight crew uh, area that are well qualified that have not yet flown. And of course, suddenly now we're getting a, perhaps a reduction in the flights and uh, I feel that I've had more than my share of space flights and uh, I would like to uh, step aside because I feel these people deserve an opportunity to uh, do what I've done. It was the astronaut class of 1966 that has been pressing hardest to do what Lovell has done, the class of Swigert, Mattingly, and Fred Hayes. The three men are much alike, serious, involved, and worried about measuring up. Hayes talked about it just before Ken Mattingly left the crew. I kind of feel like I led three lives for the FBI at times with uh, on the job plus being a uh, father and having a family and uh, Ken uh, doesn't have that uh, time to to really worry about that he can put more in the mission. I, uh, I kind of feel that this is uh, certainly a big highlight. Uh, I've been uh, directed toward this uh, mission a long time 
And I'd sure hate to feel that there was something that uh, went wrong or I didn't do right. Uh, I wouldn't want to have it on my conscience that it was due to uh, something I didn't do to prepare. Unlike Lovell, Swigert, and Mattingly, Hayes didn't always intend to be a pilot. That came later in the Navy in order to get a commission, he admits. Until then, he thought he would be a journalist and worked off and on for the newspaper in his hometown, Biloxi, Mississippi. But the demands and discipline of test flying won him over, and he has been a perfectionist in learning about the lunar module and the geology work required once he gets out on the moon's surface with Lovell. For a time, when Mike Collins became ill, Hayes was slated to make the historic mission of Apollo 11, the first landing on the moon. When Collins recovered, Hayes slid back into his present position with a minimum of fuss. And then came Apollo 13, and still another crew shakeup. A demanding test, even for men used to the pressure cooker existence of astronauts, Lovell and Hayes and Swigert. Shuffling assignments on the crew at this late date has not been an easy thing to do. NASA's administrator, Dr. Thomas Spain, spent 30 minutes alone with Jim Lovell yesterday, additional time with Fred Hayes, an indication of their frame of mind. This is not to say that Lovell and Hayes are afraid to fly with Swigert, far from it. Their reasons come down instead to the length of time it takes to get ready for a flight. There's more to a mission than getting there and back. As professionals, the astronauts want to accomplish all the little touches as well to get the maximum payoff from their flight. They are, after all, in a kind of competition with the other crews. Now, to ease the way for Swigert, some things already have been dropped from the flight plan. But more than that, Lovell and Hayes and Mattingly have worked together a long time. Hayes and Mattingly have been friends for years. They're a team. They look forward to this flight together, and so the disappointment for Lovell and Hayes is almost as bitter as it is for Ken Mattingly, the fourth member of the crew of Apollo 13. Well, since we were assigned to this flight, uh, I just made, it, uh, made up my mind that uh, I have this one chance in a lifetime, and uh, it justifies doing everything and every thought uh, between the time I was assigned and the time we go was uh, concentrated on that one effort. We make up for the other things later. But now, after living the past four years for nothing else, Ken Mattingly is not getting his chance of a lifetime. More than anyone else, Mattingly has been an astronaut, period. A bachelor, he's been almost fearfully dedicated to his work, even by astronaut standards. He gave up everything, including his social life, when he was assigned to the crew. Flying has been his life, all he has wanted since he was about three. I guess I just grew up around it. Uh, my father worked for an airline, and uh, I remember we used to go out on Sundays and drive around and watch the airplanes and go out and see the little airplanes and he knew a lot of people that, that flew and uh, that's just been one of the things that I've always accepted that that was something I was going to do. His family got used to the idea too. His mother recalls that she had to give away about 50 toy airplanes when the family moved from Chicago to Florida. But Mattingly, who finished at the top of his test pilot class, admits he was not all that impressed with spacecraft at first. I was in college at the time I first started launching spacecraft and at the time I remember I, I didn't think that the Mercury was a very attractive vehicle. I was used to looking at pictures of airplanes and that Mercury capsule didn't inspire me. But I had a chance a couple of years later to, to be flying over the Cape at the time they launched one and uh, that just looked like the way to go. I didn't really believe there was a, a prayer in the world of ever getting there but it was something I knew that if I ever had a chance, that would certainly be my first choice. Now, was there any point in your life that you would say was decisive, a sort of a make or break point? In, uh, in bringing you where you are today? 
Oh, there have been a lot of things that, uh, any one of which, if you'd left them out of the sequence, uh, might not end up here. You can't second guess where where you'd be if you had done something slightly different. Because many of the things that uh, turned out to be the most profitable to me at, at the time seemed like they were really steps in the wrong direction. For instance? Well, I started out, I was flying a, an airplane known as the AD. When I first came in the Navy, I came in to fly jets and go boom, boom, and all that. And uh, this timing when I got there, it just wasn't wasn't adequate, and uh, I ended up flying a, in a prop airplane. I felt like that was the end of the world. <laughs> and it uh, turned out that the experience I got there paved the way to getting into another squadron, and uh, that put me out of cycle to go to the, the Navy's test pilot school, and I was real disappointed with that. And lo and behold, out of that came a chance to go out to Edwards and go to the Air Force Aerospace Research School, which was a direct stepping stone to coming here. So uh, there have been a lot of little things like that that I thought had gone wrong, and in the long run, they turn out to be just exactly what I needed. Now, faced with the most bitter disappointment of his life, Ken Mattingly must be philosophical again. Friends say he is dejected naturally and determined to get another flight. But for now, there is no happy ending to his story. Well, but there may be, uh, David, as we know, uh, Tom Payne, the director of NASA, uh, told me last night that he really expects uh, Ken Mattingly to get another uh, flight, uh, be put on another crew, and it could be as early as the Apollo 16, which will be the end of uh, next year. Uh, so he will still get his flight. It is certainly believed they're not going to throw away all of that experience now. No. Two years of effort in learning to be a command module pilot uh, now, and everybody feels for him on this particular flight. This means a lot more work for him. Yeah, you're right. In fact, I think he'll probably just take over where Jack Swigert left off and pick up the role if Jack has to fly with that crew. It's, uh, it's, uh, Certainly going to be a terrible thing if he doesn't come down with measles next week. <laughs> Ooh, nobody has wished for another fellow to have a case of measles quite as much, probably, as a lot of uh, people now for Ken Mattingly, because if it turns out that with all of these tests of susceptibility, he doesn't really come down with the disease after all. And he's going to have a role in this flight if he doesn't get sick. He'll be a capsule communicator, uh, as Swigert was going to be. That's good. Just reversing roles with him, and, uh, and he'll be in touch with Swigert and really being able to talk him through a lot of the parts of the mission that uh, that uh, Mattingly had planned for. Well, I think that's uh, really evident of what we've been trying to do all these years is to get the backup crews integrated so well that they can take the seat. We didn't have time to in the past. Now with the six months between launches, you can do that. So I think you'll find this will go off quite well. And it's, uh, in a sense, a, uh, a test and, of course, but it hoped, a proof that uh, this interchangeability is possible. The experiments they're dropping that uh, uh, David Schumacher referred to are quite a few important uh, photographic uh, uh, tests they wanted to run, uh, taking pictures of the solar corona and the zodiacal light, uh, some the photography of that, and some of the lunar uh, photography that, uh, that uh, Mattingly had trained quite a long time to do, handling some new camera equipment, and presumably that Swigert wasn't clued in on all of that. No. I'm surprised. I think probably what they're trying to do is cut back on the workload and reduce some of the uh, sequences of photographs, but not a whole series, if you see what I'm trying to say, yeah. to give him an easier timeline to follow. The uh, solar corona, of course, is the, uh, the periphery of the sun as it comes across using the moon as an eclipsing 
device. Of course, they can do that up there. Yeah. <laughs> and as a result, you can take a good look at the perimeter, if you may, of the moon and see the solar corona. I, I suspect Jack will give it a go anyway. <laughs> yeah, that, that may be that they took it out as a, as a must uh, do and uh, made it optional for him. Yes. So now it's just uh, one hour and 15 minutes until the launch of Apollo 13 on its way to the moon with the crew of Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and now Jack Swigert, because Ken Mattingly was, uh, might have gotten the measles. The measles uh, all came from Houston, Texas. Right along with all the rest of these crew members from the Manned Space Center there. And Bruce Morton is there to give us a report on the measles epidemic, I suppose. Bruce? Well, uh, everybody here at the Manned Spacecraft Center and its associated suburbs has been running around these last few days trying to figure out just who first gave the German measles to whom. But, in fact, it turns out that there's what one local doctor calls a mild epidemic of rubella in this area. The uh, communicable diseases man at the Houston Health Department says he has reports from several doctors that they're seeing a lot of cases. The explanation seems to be that uh, German measles runs in cycles every six or eight years, and this is the start of a new cycle, so the frequency of the disease is expected to keep growing in this area. There is a vaccination, a vaccine, but it's, uh, it's very new, and it's only just now available for public distribution. In fact, the Houston Health Department is not uh, totally unhappy about uh, Ken Mattingly's fate. They are planning in the next few weeks to start a vaccination drive in Houston's public schools, children uh, kindergarten through third grade, and they think all this publicity is uh, liable to be of some help to them. The vaccine uh, was available, of course, for the astronauts, but uh, doctors here at NASA point out that it hasn't been used simply because it hasn't really been tested on adults much yet. There have been some cases of it's being tried on adult women who then developed arthritis as a side effect. Needless to say, NASA was not about to offer its core of astronauts as a, as a test group for this. The idea of 50-some astronauts with arthritis would not make anybody very happy. What they didn't do this time was to check in advance for immunity to rubella, probably because they were so preoccupied with other diseases that something as pedestrian as German measles just slipped by. It's likely that they will be doing that in the future, and the vaccine, once it's been proven out with other groups, will be available for use as needed. But this time, it's just... a a bad luck uh, thing for Ken Mattingly. Walter? It all happened, I gather, Bruce, because Charles Duke, who was on the, uh, on the backup crew, visited the home of some neighbors and friends where the children had German measles. He came down with German measles, exposed Mattingly and the rest of the Apollo 13 crew to it. It turned out that Lovell and Hayes had immunity, but Mattingly, bad luck for him, uh, did not. Uh, some of his... Uh, some of the souvenirs that he planned on taking to the moon are going along anyway, I gather. Uh, uh, and uh, and his name will go along. The plaque is already on the leg of the uh, lunar module uh, with his name signed on it, uh, as having land with Apollo 13. But they hasten to make a new plaque from Houston. Uh, it'll be carried along and somehow propped up, I guess, on the limb 13, but still medically named will be there. And perhaps they'll call that uh, anti-rubella program in the Houston Public Schools the Mattingly program, and uh, he'll be famous down there for uh, a long time to come. I was just thinking, you know, it's uh, almost a poor Jack case, because uh, Ken will have all of the mementos on the flight uh, indicating that he's been on the moon when, in fact, or at least in the vicinity of the moon, and here's Jack and drilling around. So 
can have two whacks on it, yeah. And didn't he tell you that he didn't have time to get any mementos? His little goodies, though, yeah, I think he had two little medallions or something like that. <laughs> so you'll have to catch up there. How much, how much stuff do they take up there? Uh, oh, very little, really. We, uh, we've, accu we've been accused of carrying in our PPK, which is a, a technical term for it, and that means pilot's preference kit. Oh. Uh, a whole batch of things. And, of course, you've never seen any commercial come out of it. And that's very true that nothing will. Yeah. The uh, fellows might have a small ring for their father or their mother or their wife. In this case, uh, I don't know how many Jack girlfriends Jack has. You've got a problem with that. But in any case... Uh, He's got a the, great excuse, though. Didn't have time to get you anything on him before I went to the moon. <laughs> well, that's the best excuse I've ever. Maybe they planned the whole thing that way. He, incidentally, uh, we haven't reported it, he flew off to Houston last night. I don't know whether he just decided that he couldn't couldn't stand to be here. Oh, no, this is a normal procedure. I, I would almost have expected that, because yeah. we had to be in the uh, control center to pick yeah. up the count, just as you and I were out here early to pick yeah. up the count. Yeah. Uh, normally, the Capcom is on the console about three hours, four hours before liftoff. They're there prior to the crew coming of the spacecraft. Have we heard? Is he going to be Capcom for liftoff? I, well, uh, I normally would expect him to be back there. Yeah. I, I started that tradition, really, with Apollo 7. Uh, uh, with my backup crew, I asked Tom Stafford to go back, and John Young stayed here mm -hmm. to help prepare the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. So I think Ken's probably in that role. Do you get to pick your own Capcoms? We do. Well, it's more of a writer ref a refusal, and of course mm -hmm. there are very few that we would refuse, but uh, typically we ask for the best man we can get. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I'll never forget the day I asked Al Shepard to uh, help me on my Mercury flight, and he ended up on this boat, and there was a boat, a real round bottom Hall walk Japan in the middle of a typhoon. He's, I think he's still looking for me. <laughs> Phil Stout, uh, our CBS News correspondent who's helped us uh, cover nearly all of these flights, is with Leo Krupp, the North American Rockwell uh, test uh, engineer, uh, who has also been in our test command module for all of these flights. And they're again in the command module at our space center on Long Island. Gentlemen, I'm wondering, from your vantage point, uh, what problems you see that Jack Swigert might have in fitting in now to this crew? You know, Walter, Leo is a basketball fan, and he keeps talking to me in terms of uh, the Los Angeles Lakers readjusting to Wilt Chamberlain after he was out for so long. Is it really comparable, or is that just uh, sports talk, Leo? No, I think so, Bill. I, there's absolutely no doubt in anybody's mind that Jack Swigert has the ability and knows the command service module systems to carry this flight off. The only... The only thing that I was concerned about was the, the precise timing and coordination required by the crew, especially if they have an emergency. Uh, Jack will be sitting in the center couch on liftoff, and if they should have an emergency, uh, the guy in the center couch assists the command pilot in making a lot of decisions. He's, he's using the uh, computer, he's giving them information, he's reading them the checklist, and it operates a lot like a basketball team. And uh, I know Coach Mullaney of the... Uh, of the Lakers wanted pro uh, Wilt back in the lineup because he's a real pro, but he had a problem of maintaining the team timing and coordination, and they did have a little rough time the first few games until Wilt worked into the system. And I'm sure that Jack has worked into the system, or or Jim Lovell uh, would not have approved the the substitution. So I don't think there will be any problems because uh, Jack is is an outstanding. Uh, a gentleman, he's been in the command service modules on the malfunction procedures. He knows the systems backwards and forwards, and uh, there should be no problem. Uh, my real, another real concern I have is for Ken Mattingly. I know Ken wanted to go on this flight so badly, and uh, yeah. I uh, really sympathize with his disappointment. But at this point, then, it is teamwork and timing. Those are the two factors. Walter, for a rundown of the 
lunar module, we have uh, Nelson Benton and Scott McLeod. Bill, uh, looking ahead a little bit to the culmination of any successful flight is, of course, the landing. And this time, the landing is going to be uh, somewhat more complicated. It's going, they're going into highland areas, uh, into treacherous terrain. And Scott McLeod, who is chief consulting one. pilot for Grumman. Scott, how is this landing different? How is it tougher than the previous ones? Well, Nelson, the approach is not that uh, different on the landing, but they'll be landing, as you mentioned, in the highland areas, and therefore there'll be a lot of large rocks in the area. Not as good a runway. No, no, the runway is going to be rather poor. On the flight of Apollo 12, there was this matter of dust as the lunar module approached the surface, dust coming up around the moon. Have there been any changes to try to overcome that problem? <clears throat> well, there haven't been any changes, uh, hardware changes, really. A more or less a procedural change in that now the uh, commander will be using the ROD, that's the rate of descent switch, to control his rate of descent going down. But in addition, he has the capability to go into automatic hold on translation so well, what, what, that he doesn't have to attend to this during the last IFR. What, what you're saying then uh, is that when the dust comes up, they can hit the automatic switch and uh, land sort of no hands. So yes, they have that capability. Well, that comes uh, next Wednesday night, but back to the events of the moment right now, and you, Walter. Let me see if I get that right, Scott. Uh, uh, what, 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 they're, what they're doing this time is, in effect, uh, uh, they've got the capability of going back onto automatic after, uh, after going onto manual. So that what Lovell is going to do with the LEM is come in uh, automatic for a while, of course, uh, and then and then he's going to take over at a much higher altitude uh, uh, manually and hover right down at a rather high altitude over where he wants to land, and then he throws it back onto automatic and it just sets it down like an elevator, roughly. That's roughly it? That's about it, Walter. If it's, not, he if, has... it's, if, it's uh, if it's anything more than roughly, why, uh, tell me in private. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has that capability. I'm not saying he will do it. It's a program 66 that he can use on the disky here. Uh, all right. <laughs> program 66 on the disky. We'll be watching for it on Wednesday. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Aquarius on the moon. Aquarius, the lunar module, due to uh, land on the moon on Wednesday. If this takeoff today from Cape Kennedy in just one hour and one minute from now is as successful as everybody thinks it will be and hopes it will be, of course. Aquarius is the name of the lunar module that Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes will fly to the moon's surface. Uh, the command ship that uh, Jack Swigert will be flying around the moon waiting their return is called Odyssey. Aquarius, according to Lovell, uh, because uh, it was Aquarius, the water carrier, who helped uh, bring enlightenment uh, back in the mythological period, uh, and also Aquarius because it represents uh, youth, a new age, and uh, that, he says, is why he named the lunar module Aquarius. Odyssey, because presumably it continues its wanderings around the moon uh, successfully, it's hoped, and uh, to bring back a lot of stories, as even did Odysseus, uh, after whom the Odyssey was named, and Homer's famous stories of those ten years of travel. Everything is go for the launch. The uh, crew is in the Apollo 13 command module high atop the powerful Saturn V rocket out there on pad 39A here at the Kennedy Space Center. And the weather uh, is not deteriorating uh, very much. There is that high uh, haze 
that will not be any constraint to the launch. This afternoon, I suppose the second major topic of conversation after the measles is the weather. As you may recall, Apollo 12 uh, lifted off last November in a terrible rainstorm. Now, although weathermen spotted no lightning in the area, the space vehicle, uh, perhaps one of the theories is, created its own electrical charges. At any rate, there was lightning, and that caused serious, but fortunately only momentary, power failures aboard the spacecraft. Launch officials have changed the rules since then. They're a lot tighter now, and we'll review those in a moment. But first, let's look at a film of that Apollo 12 launch. Start. Six, five, with the ignition. Three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Commit. Lift off. There's that. Hold on, Arnold. <laughs> yeah. You can see how dark that was. It was a miserable day. Remember why? Very, very vividly. It almost disappeared at the top of the tower. <laughs> Raining. Cloud coming. Yeah, see that lightning there. streak? Other than everything's fine. Yeah, <laughs> they were calling back everything out practically. Okay, we're all organized again, Jack. We've had a couple of cardiac arrests down here too, Pete. <laughs> but uh, Pete Conrad and his crew. Uh, did everything just exactly as they should have, threw the right switches, uh, uh, analyzed the situation, and away they went. That was uh, probably the fastest six-handed poker game I ever heard of. They, they really were busy. And, of course, they ended up uh, in Earth orbit, uh, settling in on their uh, alignment of their platform, which is very significant. And I since have talked to Dick Gordon, and he uh, mentioned that it was very difficult to make the alignment at first because his eyes hadn't adapted to the, the dark side in Earth orbit to pick up the stars, and he was very concerned he couldn't see any yet. And, of course, that problem was finally solved by night adaptation is a typical term. So then everything started falling back into order, and it was an orderly mission from then on. How, how long, then, was it all together that they still had uh, some doubts about the mission? Oh, I'd say uh, probably by the end of the first orbit, when they had the mm -hmm. platform aligned and everything was back in order, there were probably uh, at least if no longer cardiac arrests or some rather slow-beating hearts in mission control. Well, mission control didn't intend to have any more cardiac arrests for that reason. No. They really put some pretty tight, uh, stringent weather uh, regulations on. I think uh, about as tight as they've been since the days of Mercury and the early Gemini flights when they wanted visual uh, observation and, uh, and photographs of all phases of the launch uh, operation. And now they're really pretty tough again. At our Space Center in New York, WCBS-TV Chief Meteorologist Gordon Barnes can give us some details of those new mission rules for the launch day weather and perhaps something about the weather. Gordon? Walla, when I came in this morning and looked at the weather map, it looked very similar to what it did back in November of last year during the launch of Apollo 12. However, there's one major difference at this hour on the map, and that is the frontal system has remained stationary. It has not moved like the last one did. But based on the circumstances surrounding the launch of Apollo 12, weather requirements have been changed to avoid a repetition of that harrowing experience. First of all, a launch may not take place if the flight path of the space vehicle will come within five miles of a thunderstorm or within three miles of an associated anvil. As pilots know, in the area underneath that anvil, there's a lot of turbulence, severe turbulence, and also some hail. I know of cases myself flying from Bermuda 
to New York, once you cross the Gulf Stream and hit one of those uh, anvils, you had hail as much as 40 to 50 miles out ahead of it. Secondly, no launch may proceed when cold front or squall line clouds are present, as they are also capable of producing thunderstorms as well as turbulence. In addition, middle cloud layers 6,000 feet or greater in depth, where the freeze level is in the clouds. Here again, the contrast in temperature will create turbulence as well as trigger off thunderstorms. Finally, cumulus-type clouds with tops at 10,000 feet or higher, as this type of cloud usually indicates the atmosphere is unstable, thereby there is a high potential for thunderstorms. In northern Florida, yes, they do have showers and thunderstorms today. However, down there at Cape Kennedy, you have some high, thin clouds, one layer at 14,000 feet, and another one up around 20,000 feet. Present indications are that that is what you will have at launch time in about one hour. Looks good, Waller. Well, looking out the window, it looks pretty good. Uh, I know that's no way to make a weather forecast, Gordon. I don't mean to, don't mean to step on your lines there, but uh, Very good. you can see some blue, and uh, there is that high haze. But as we also know, uh, uh, by golly, you can get uh, change weather down here in a matter of seconds. Uh, there have been moments when we've driven out here to, the, uh, to our press site uh, from uh, Cocoa Beach in driving rain. You wouldn't believe that there could ever be a launch, and a couple of hours later at lunchtime where the sun's shining and it's just beautiful. Uh, the reverse also could be true, but we're glad to have your word, Gordon, that there's nothing around us that ought to come in here in the next 55 minutes and 7 seconds to uh, delay this another on-time departure for Apollo. You're going off uh, in, in marvelous, uh, with marvelous precision in time. This mission, uh, and there, there's a great picture from one of the uh, static cameras, uh, the television cameras that are all around uh, the uh, the. Saturn V and its uh, precious cargo of the Apollo 13 to give the Launch Control Center constant monitoring of what's going on out there. You saw a moment ago the big bells of the uh, uh, Saturn V first stage power plant. Each of those pumps forward a million and a half pounds of thrust for a total of uh, seven and a half million pounds of thrust to get this 360 foot uh, beast up into the sky. It weighs uh, almost uh, half again as much as a small destroyer and it takes an awful lot of power to get it off of uh, the sands of uh, Cape Kennedy or here actually Merritt Island. I'm glad uh, they're using that word pounds because a lot of people have trouble relating that but really what you're lifting are pounds and the thrust is the same pound so you have more pounds thrust than you have weight of vehicle and then as a result you go up <laughs> at least that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. The, uh, of course, these are three-stage vehicles that we have now, which makes it possible to go to the moon, uh, that, uh, the big engine, to, to get you uh, up off of the surface of the Earth. That takes the most thrust, and then when you get up a little higher, you can drop off all of that extra weight, go to the second stage, which has, uh, in this case, a million pounds of thrust, the second stage, and that uh, can get you up into the Earth orbit uh, with a heavy payload and around, and then that third stage you can cut in and now you're up above all of the drag of the atmosphere and with the uh, 200,000 pounds of thrust where well, you can get off on the way to the moon. Really haul the mail as most of the fellows are saying. Uh, this, this mission is not just a carbon copy by any means of Apollo 11 and 12. Uh, no more than 12 is a carbon copy of 11 as a matter of fact. Uh, 11, each of these missions is, is a step forward, a progressive step, and when people ask uh, why do we still have to go, well, there's, there's more to be done, more to find out. Uh, this mission, for instance, as opposed to 11 and 12, 11 was a mission that uh, simply proved we could land on the moon. That's really 
all it amounted to. Uh, Twelve, which was, of course, a lot. I don't mean to, to decry that at all. Uh, Apollo uh, 12, the mission, was the first really uh, geological mission to gather some uh, sampled rocks to put out a, a scientific space station with its own atomic power plant that could continue to operate indefinitely, certainly at least a year, uh, to send back uh, data from uh, various experiments uh, that were placed on the moon by Apollo 12. And both of those landings made in fairly flat areas, not particularly interesting geological areas. Now we prove with Apollo 11 and 12 that we can get in and that the guidance system of the spacecraft works well. So with the confidence uh, of, uh, of, of that experience behind us, we can take Apollo 13 and really go into the so-called highland area of Fra Mauro on the moon, uh, named after an old 15th century monk who was uh, pretty interested in geology and uh, geography and such things. They named that area of the moon from Morrow. Uh, it's a, it's, it's what, where they're at. Going really are the foothills of some quite mountainous areas on beyond. Uh, but they're going to the foothills of these mountains where there are four and five hundred uh, foot high hills. And indeed, they're going to try to climb one of those. It's about a 10 to 15 degree grade. It's going to be quite a climb. Uh, some uh, uh, three or four hundred feet up the side of this mountain, at, up at, uh, this hill that goes up about four hundred feet. It's called Cone Hill. And they're going to uh, go up there because of the interest in this whole area. They feel that on the edge of that cone, uh, there may be some of the oldest rocks uh, on the moon. So far, they've brought back rocks from Apollo 11, actually of 4.6 million years. Uh, they think very probably that there may be five million year old rocks in this area because the Maribrium, uh, the ocean uh, of rain, a sea of rain, so-called, uh, is one of the largest of these mare sea areas and probably formed by one of the largest impacts of another meteor, perhaps another moon, uh, billions of years ago on the moon. And it plunged in all the way down to maybe much as 100 miles and threw out all of this debris. Well, it means there's a debris in there from way deep in the moon, perhaps scattered on the surface of this area. That's why it's interesting. Uh, that's why they're going there. Now, there are a lot of new things about the flight in getting there. One is the weather constraints we've talked about after Apollo 12. That's new. Now, the, this, the S-4B, the uh, third stage of the uh, rocket, the stage that puts them into the lunar trajectory. Uh, once it does its job and they cut off from it uh, later today, that S-4B uh, will vent its uh, liquid oxygen and in venting it picks up some speed. Mm -hmm. Picking up that speed, instead of being hurled around the moon on out into a long solar orbit, it's going crashing into the moon. This is deliberate. This uh, big thing is going to go pounding into the moon at about seven or 8,000 miles an hour and uh, it will uh, with, have an impact of equivalency of about 11 tons of TNT, they say. That's the biggest thing to ever hit the moon that we know about. And the big point is that with the seismograph left on the moon by Apollo 12, uh, around 140 miles away from that impact point, they will be able to measure a lot of what's underneath the moon's surface through the quake that results from that big impact. Uh, as a matter of fact, with the, with the Apollo 12 uh, lamb going into the moon, they already have some new mysteries about the moon. You know, these first two flights, the scientists really haven't 
They really haven't. They've learned an awful lot, but they haven't decided anything about about what the moon really is made of yet. I think they learned a lot about what they don't know yet. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the point. The uh, uh, this Apollo, when Apollo 12 LEM went in, it registered on the seismograph a quake, a bell-like uh, reaction that lasted for 55 minutes. Quite a surprise. Now, any similar thing on Earth, the earthquake is about a five-minute tremor is the most. So that gave them a whole new uh, area of inquiry as to what the moon is made of, if it rings like that, really, uh, literally, when it, it is hit. Uh, and, uh, and that's why they want another big shock, but the S-4B. Now, also, the combined uh, command module and lunar module this time, instead of separating in the orbit around 70 miles above the moon, and then the lunar module doing its own descent and uh, getting down to the level where it can actually make the landing, they're going down together. Uh, they're, uh, after the third revolution, they're going to fire off the command modules, service propulsion system, and use that to, for the whole combined operation to sweep down within 10 miles of uh, the moon's surface. And down there, they're going to fly right over at 3,700 miles an hour. So <laughs> I guess they can see something at that speed. They, they fly over the Framoro landing site, and, uh, and they'll do that uh, nine times uh, connected, as they will be, uh, that takes them about 18 hours or so, and then they separate, and then a couple more times where the lunar module come, come sweeping down over that site, and on the third time down where he lands. But that gives them a chance to much better tracking information. They know exactly where they're going. They get a chance to look at the area first, and uh, matter of fact, they're going to give us a television transmission. I, I, I think that'll be pretty exciting, that low. It ought to be. Uh, I tried that uh, at the evaluator at North American, in fact, and... It's a pretty sporty ride getting down that low to the moon. This is the same altitude that uh, most of our commercial jets are flying, if you think about it. It's about 50,000 feet, the jets now are about 40. So it, uh, that doesn't seem like uh, very low to us here on Earth, but it's, it's awfully low when you're, when you vary velocity by just a very minute amount. It, it could be too low. Mm -hmm. and that's the thing you, of course, watch for. So this is going to be a very interesting maneuver for the crew. It just uh, it has to be very precise, that's all. The reason for it is to improve the tracking, uh, it, oh, it's it, also it, to uh, add to the, uh, uh, to decrease the propellant requirements for the LEM so they have more time to hover over the surface of the landing spot. I think they gain as much as 15 seconds yeah. of hover time. Which sounds like actually nothing when you think of it, 15 extra seconds to take a look at where you're going down there. I guess uh, that's pretty okay. critical. Well, if you remember, we, on 11, we were sweating that one out. We heard 30 seconds to go, and they still, I think they left about, uh, about 20 seconds left. And that's not much time. So yep. that 15 adds up to be a big number when you get down to towards zero at least. I think they've got a margin, a cutoff margin of 30 seconds, haven't they? They've yes. got to get out of there if they're still, if they get down to within 30 seconds of fuel, uh, they got to move out and not fiddle around any longer. And uh, 11, uh, the first reports were that they only had 40 seconds of fuel left, but mm -hmm. they were within 10 seconds of that red light going. Uh, I think later on they updated that. Well, they made us all feel better. 60 yes. or something <laughs> to make them feel better. Well, it's it. very hard to gauge that, and that's really the reason, and uh, particularly in the first flight, we weren't sure how accurately the gauging system would work, and that confidence now has been built up from 11 and 12. Other things that are new on this flight, we're going to have color television, we hope. <laughs> They've got a lens cap this time uh, so that the uh, sun will not burn out the tube as it did on Apollo 12. Uh, we should see most of the two walk periods, uh, although some of that second uh, long traverse up the mountainside, uh, hillside, we perhaps will not get to see uh, too far away from the camera position. Uh, they're going to have uh, drinking 
bags, the little drinking bags inside of their spacesuits this time for the walk because they got pretty thirsty last mm -hmm. time and now they're going to have a little eight ounce uh, drinking bag, not very much, but it'll help. Uh, the sun angle is going to be a little higher in landing, but that shouldn't give them that much more uh, difficulty. Uh, and those are the principal differences, other than the scientific ones. We might want to talk about that too. Uh, David Schumacher and Dr. John Salisbury of the Air Force uh, Cambridge Research Center are standing by in New York to uh, give us more details of the scientists' interest in this flight. The gentlemen? Right, Waller. Dr. Salisbury, uh, the first landing on the moon, Apollo 11 here in tranquility. Uh, the second one, Apollo 12, 800 miles to the west, I guess you'd call it, uh, here. And now we're going to this spot in the Highlands area of Fra Mauro. Why? Well, David, what we really want to know about the moon is what major events happened during lunar history. When did they happen? Why did they happen? How did they happen? Now, the first two landing sites on the Mare areas had one advantage, which was that they were relatively smooth. But the lava flows that made these areas smooth also sealed off from our inspection uh, any evidence we had of early events in lunar history. The Apollo 13 site, on the other hand, has the advantage of, of bearing material that we have access to that will tell us about some of the earliest and most spectacular events in lunar history. The one that I'm referring to as spectacular is the giant impact that produced the Embrian Basin up here to the north. This impact laid a gigantic blanket of debris down to the south. The blanket is very thick here in the Apennine Mountains. It's 10 to 20,000 feet here. It thins rapidly to the south. And in the area of the Apollo 13 site, it's probably 300 to 600 feet thick. Now, if we can sample this embryon ejecta, we can sample material that's derived from 30 miles, perhaps, within the body of the moon. We'll be able to answer such questions as when did the moon first solidify? And uh, when did this gigantic impact take place? And generally, m much about the time scale and nature of the events that carve the face of the moon as we see it today. Well, from a scientific standpoint, then, uh, this area has always been interesting. Highlands areas have been the places you've wanted to go most, and they've been yes. the places that astronauts have wanted to go least. What does it look like where uh, Lovell and Hayes are going to be landing? Well, I think we can see that on this model here. Just happened to have. Just happened. Uh, it's, uh, of course, a very rugged area, and there's no doubt about that. The, the ridges present, one ridge you can see here, another here. These, these ridges are ridges of uh, ejecta thrown out of the Imbrian impact. Uh, the, some of the more recent craters in the area are heavily uh, covered with uh, blocks, very coarse blocks of debris that are, would be difficult to land among. But fortunately, in this area here and in other uh, valley areas in this region, uh, we have had some invasion by volcanic material. And this volcanic material does provide a uh, relatively smooth surface on which they can land, and it will be uh, somewhat similar to the surfaces on which they've already landed successfully. That is, as long as they're pretty well on the center line as they come down. Yes, they have to target in over these ridges to get to the uh, smooth area in the valley. Walter, uh, it doesn't look too hard from here. <laughs> <laughs> no, from New York it looks pretty easy, as a matter of yeah. fact. The, uh, uh, we've got a Kind of an interesting picture here I think you might like to see. It's from up on the uh, service tower of the Apollo 13, right up there at the uh, command module level. You can just see the command module, that tapered part above the, uh, above the uh, uh, Saturn V. And looking back at the track uh, up which the uh, erector uh, carriage brings the, uh, the crawl erector, yes. crawler, mm -hmm. which is the size of a couple of football fields, the biggest beast you ever saw. And here's a picture 
uh, taken uh, with the new color television camera uh, on the launch uh, tower, which is almost identical to the color camera, a little 12-pound device that Lovell and Hayes will use on the moon. Uh, the, uh, uh, there are a couple of differences. Uh, not very important. One is enclosed in a special box to protect it against damage there uh, on the uh, 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 on the stand here from the rocket's exhaust, and it has a new tube which can't be burned out by pointing at the sun. And NASA is looking into the possibility of incorporating that uh, new tube, incidentally, in future lunar television cameras. The tube that, uh, you, that we're using right there for that particular uh, picture. The tube that is going up. Uh, on this Apollo 13, and there's a great picture of the command module and the service uh, module uh, right behind it, uh, which is the same dimensions and diameter as it is, and the launch escape tower at the top. That thing that looks like a television antenna sitting up there on top uh, is the so-called launch escape tower. Uh, it can pull the, with rocket power, pull the command module free from the rest of the rocket and uh, carry it on uh, up uh, and away from uh, any catastrophe which may overtake the rocket on the launch phase. And uh, then uh, detaching itself, uh, the command module can uh, drop back uh, into the sea on its regular parachute system. The time, 39 and a half minutes uh, before the launch. And here we have a look at uh, mission control in Houston. Uh, Ken Mattingly has just come into Mission Control Center, taken a seat next to the Capcom's desk, and uh, I can't identify him there. Can you? Uh, I think that's he right there. Yeah, just to the right. Over you can see you. that uh, yeah, shiny little head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, there we are. Yeah. He almost disappeared back there. Looks like, like that monk up there. I thought there, it was a control it? panel. <laughs> <laughs> he, when he arrived, Flight Director Milton Windler told him, I'm sorry to see you here, Ken. The... Uh, Incidentally, we got word from over at uh, Launch Control Center a moment ago that uh, Dr. Thomas Paine, the uh, administrator of NASA, uh, said and told the boys in there that if, uh, if Ken Mattingly didn't come down with the measles, Dr. Chuck Berry, the uh, astronaut <laughs> physician who, who made the decision that he was uh, liable to, they had, that Payne himself is going to hold him up so that Mattingly can punch him. <laughs> I, I suspect that would be the least he'd do. <laughs> if I, I suppose, though, really, if Dr. Berry was as clever as I know he is, he might very well have administered some measles germs in that last <laughs> physical. <laughs> and with 37 minutes left of the countdown, which is proceeding uh, absolutely uh, normally, there have been no problems at all uh, since the measles uh, came along and Ken Mattingly was replaced by Jack Swigert in that crew of Apollo 13 due to uh, be launched here from the Cape toward the moon. The timeline incidentally, the launch this afternoon scheduled for 2.13 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, just 36 and a half minutes from now. They should reach the moon at about 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday. They touch down on the moon uh, at 9.55 p.m. on Wednesday. The first walk is at 2.25 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, early in the morning. Uh, second walk at 10 o'clock that night. The liftoff from the moon then the following day at 7.22 in the morning. The docking uh, with the LEM returning to the command module where Swigert will be waiting at 10.58 a.m. on Friday morning. They leave the moon at 1.42 p.m. on Saturday, splash down a little south of the equator out in the mid-Pacific at 3.17 p.m. on Tuesday, April 21st. 
If the flight of Apollo 13 goes as the others do, they'll be right on target within a couple of miles of where it's been planned for them to drop for the last two years, and uh, they'll be right on time within a few seconds of that uh, planned landing time, which is one of the remarkable feats. So half a million mile voyage, uh, uh, four days around the moon and back uh, to Earth and be right on time, just as they planned it in the book. Nelson Benton and Scott McCloud at Grumman Aerospace on Beth Base, Long Island, have a look for us at the two walks on the moon, the highlights of this trip that uh, Lovell and Hayes are going to take. Gentlemen? Walter, the moonwalks that are scheduled are greater in time, in the distance that they hope to cover on the lunar surface, and in the requirements that they face during those walks. The CBS News simulation in condensed form has Scott McCloud in the role of the commander and Grumman engineer Charles Smith performing the functions of the lunar module pilot. And it begins, of course, on uh, next uh, Thursday morning, very early, when uh, the commander will start his egress from the limb. And we might note very early in this that that stripe on uh, the commander's helmet, a red stripe, he also has stripes on his sleeves and his pants legs, is to help uh, scientists distinguish between uh, the commander and the lunar module pilot. As he descends the ladder, he opens a equipment storage uh, package, and there, of course, is the plaque, which has Mattingly's name on it, but as you reported earlier, they will be carrying an extra plaque with uh, Swigert's name on it. At the bottom of the ladder is the familiarization. You see the stripes on the sleeves of the commander so that in photographs and in television transmissions back to Earth, uh, the commander can be distinguished from the lunar module pilot. These suits allow a little bit more freedom. These were made by ILC Industries, who make the real suits. The lunar module pilot still inside, while the command pilot gets what is called a contingency sample, a very quick bag of lunar dust in case the moonwalk should have to be terminated for some reason or other ahead of time. He takes that bag off uh, the end of the rod and places it in his left pocket down by his knee. Then uh, the lunar module pilot egresses uh, some uh, 20, 20 minutes or so later, thus becoming, if all goes well, the sixth man to set foot on the surface of the moon. Among the uh, very early functions that are performed by the crew and their stay on the moon is to prepare a supplemental antenna to move into position, which uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about in just a moment or so, and also to uh, get the television camera all set to go. And this time, there is an uncapped camera so that we can see that first step of the crew onto the moon, but one of the first things they'll do when they get to the camera itself is to put a lens cap on it. That uh, something that was learned from the flight of Apollo 12 when it's believed that the camera being pointed directly at the sun is what rendered it useless. And in the event, however, that this color camera does not uh, perform properly, there is another black and white camera on board the LAM that can be brought into use by one of the crewmen going back inside, bringing it out and hooking it up. There is an effort planned in the surface operations to put the television camera into position, into strategic position during the lunar walk so that the activities uh, can be observed. And this is uh, an auxiliary antenna that 
deploys like an inverted umbrella. And Scott, what is the... Uh, why do we need another antenna? We're getting pictures back and getting data back all the time. Well, this is called the erectable S-band antenna, and the purpose of it is so we can get everything back at the same time. We don't need a timeshare, for example, our data. It carries a heavier load than the... Uh, yes, it does. ...than the uh, antenna on board the spacecraft itself. Now, the lunar module, module pilot is going back into the LAM. Uh, the reason being that it has to go back in and get to the right switch to activate that antenna, rather than being able to do it from the surface itself. Very early in the first EVA is the deployment of the American flag, which has been done on both uh, preceding flights. There's first a small staff driven into the surface, then a second one attached, and the flag deploys itself with its own built-in wind since there is no wind on the moon. In each case there, what they're trying to do, as you pointed out before, is keep that TV camera pointing at uh, portions that can be seen so that they will try and stay in the field and everyone here can observe what is going on the whole time. The camera has been moved over to what is called the scientific equipment quadrant uh, to observe what will be done there. And what will be done there is really a great part of the purpose of the flight. What's going on there, Scott? Well, he's pulling out one package, the first package from the ALSEP, where the scientific equipment is. First he pulls it out on that boom, then we'll pull the other lanyard, and that drops it down to the surface of the moon. Rather rapidly. <laughs> yes. And then there's a second uh, part of the scientific package that, that's removed by hand. The package contains uh, another seismic measurement device to measure moonquakes. It contains... Uh, an atmosphere detector, if there is any atmosphere. All of this forms signals that are sent back to Earth, and it's powered by a radioactive generator. And this is the rather ticklish and tedious process of uh, loading the fuel into that generator. Scott, uh, it He's, must be handled carefully. Yes, it's a very high temperature. Uh, right About now, 1,200 degrees. Right now, the uh, LEM pilot is taking the cap off, then he will extract the core then the commander will tilt the package on the surface of the moon over so they can be easily entered into there. That's the... that puts the generator all together. There are a couple of special tools for handling this uh, hot hunk of plutonium to avoid brushing the spacesuits because it could do some damage to the suits should it uh, uh, brush them. This is a, another solar wind composition measurement. Actually, it's uh, aluminum foil, and it picks up particles. They'll take it off and take it back with them. Now, the commander has taken the two packages and put them together with a bar, and he's carrying that across to where they'll deploy the scientific package. Now that, that big barbell is about 215 pounds on Earth, which it's uh, heavy. <laughs> reduces it to about uh, 36 pounds on the moon's surface. They go, I think, about 300 feet away so that they will not, the scientific packages will not be affected when the ascent stage fires and they go back up again to get it out completely from the blast. Deploying this uh, scientific package takes a, a great portion of the first four-hour uh, walk on the lunar surface. That gadget that looks like a sophisticated long-stemmed water fountain is a central station that... Uh, takes all of the information from the seismic package, uh, from the lunar atmosphere detector, from the other experiments, and uh, 
collects them electronically and sends them back to Earth electronically. And this is a new gadget for the flight of Apollo 13. This is the lunar drill. And Scott, that's a fairly sophisticated piece of machinery. Yes, it is. The LEM pilot in this particular experiment will be doing all the drill work. That's Fred Hayes. Here he's assembling the drill, and he'll drill down the drill, I believe, three different holes. Has a capability of going about 10 feet down. And uh, you drill a little ways and then uh, put on another bit, drill some more. Three holes, uh, two of them are for heat probes that will be inserted uh, down low in the moon surface, up to perhaps nine or 10 feet, and connected to that uh, central station. They'll send back uh, temperature readings that could tell something more about the, uh, the lower composition of the moon, what it is below the surface. And then there's a third hole to be drilled, which uh, will just give scientists a deeper sample of the, uh, well, not the Earth, but, <laughs> of, the the, but of the soil <laughs> on the moon. I don't know whether you can see it clearly. There is a lanyard that he's holding onto as he inverts the drill each time to set it down. One of the engineers who was involved with the development of this drill told me that it cost uh, 2.7 megabucks to build. That's uh, space ease for 2.7 million dollars, but they come out, I think, at a cost of about 175,000 dollars a piece. Now the heat probe is being inserted into the hole. It's a, a highly sophisticated thermometer really, Scott. Yes. This will transmit the information back as to the temperature under the surface of the moon. Here he's adjusting. He just finished the adjustment. I guess he's inserting it again there. Then uh, the central station, once all of the scientific package is deployed, the central station is uh, turned on so that it can start uh, sending information back. Some of the equipment is tossed away, of course. Now at this point, they're going for the deep hole, I believe. This is the using the drill again to get a very deep sample up to eight or nine feet, depending on how much resistance that drill needs. Uh, at that price, it shouldn't uh, reach too much, need too much resistance. And this will be disassembled in uh, carryable links, I think they're about uh, 18 inches long, and carried back to give the scientists on Earth a longer stratified sample of the moon's crust. And after this probably four to five hour bit of activity, they'll brush each other off, take some of what they've gathered back into the limb and uh, go for a, about a 16 hour rest period before uh, preparing for the second EVA. And late on Thursday night, they'll take that second EVA, which is composed of a lot of walking. Actually, they'll walk about uh, 4,500 feet, if they land where they hope to, uh, to the Cone Crater, which is believed to be perhaps uh, the oldest, to represent perhaps the oldest part of the moon. And in all, the route they take going and coming back, uh, they walk something pretty close to two miles. They'll be taking samples along the way and uh, sort of 
their choice as to what they want to do along the way in a coming back. This we probably will not see on the television camera because they'll be out of range. They'll take a special sample from a trench and uh, this is to tell scientists a bit more about the soil mechanics of the moon. They'll also take the routine core sample Mm -hmm. which a uh, hollow tube goes down into the crust. and You can see on both of their backpacks here this uh, canvas bag that they carried a similar one on the last launch, which they brought pieces of the surveyor back in. Now they will bring samples back in that, and they each carry one. This condensed uh, version, of course, doesn't sh show all of the photographing that the two crews, crew members will be doing all along the way, but uh, much of it will be uh, documented to the extent that uh, the scientists back on Earth will know where, what came from, and uh, under what conditions it was taken off of the moon. And then after uh, the second four, or perhaps as much as a five-hour walk on the moon, they'll settle down to get ready for the problem of coming back to Earth, Walter. they can extend it to another hour and everybody's betting that they'll take the other hour if uh, all the consumables are right things are going well on the surface of the moon thank you gentlemen out there and under reasonably clear skies a high haze still but no serious weather problems we're waiting for the launch of apollo 13 with some 21 minutes and 25 seconds left in the countdown before the launch scheduled for 2:13 p.m eastern standard time we had some reference earlier today to the number 13 in this uh, flight. It is taking off at 2.13. It is Apollo 13, and they'll be the 13th and 14th and 15th men to go to the moon. Uh, so, uh, but none of them seem concerned at all about the numerology involved. Uh, the uh, launch, all the countdown is going well with Jack Swigert now in that middle command module pilot seat instead of Ken Mattingly, who may be coming down with the measles. We're going to have a new voice of Apollo here for the launch phase uh, at the uh, Cape today. Chuck Hollinshead, uh, who has been a deputy to Jack King, is taking over the voice job today. Jack King uh, wanted to see one of these launches from outside. It's a temptation, I guess, for everybody who's locked in the control room uh, during, the, uh, during the launch. So Jack King is uh, out at the press site uh, to see for the first time, uh, other than on television, the launch of an Apollo uh, spaceship. And we're going to be hearing from, instead, Chuck Collinshead, who's been drilling long as the backup man to Jack King as the voice of uh, launch control. We ought to hear an announcement from him just about now. This is Apollo Saturn launch control, T-minus 19 minutes, 59 seconds and counting. Now, at passing the 20-minute mark in our countdown, and the spacecraft test supervisor has indicated that they're running just slightly ahead of that in their countdown. The command module pilot, Jack Schweikert, is now pressurizing the service module reaction control system. This is the system on the service module, which consists of four quadrants with four engines each. Each one of these develops 100 pounds of thrust. He's arming these systems by letting the hypergolic fuels, these are monomethyl hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide, flow down through the system down to the final valves. Hypergolic fuels ignite on contact, so once those final valves are open, they would ignite and the system would be activated. Swigert also reading out the temperatures and pressures of that system. The countdown moving along well at this time, T-minus 19 minutes, 4 seconds and counting, 
This is Kennedy Launch Control. I've often wondered whether Jack King and Hollinsett have a book from which they're reading all of that information, or it's all back there in their heads. I suspect a combination of both, but at any rate, they do terrific jobs. Really, it's a, an extraordinary performance that they put on in keeping us so, uh, uh, so clearly uh, informed about every move that's going on out there at the launch pad. A lot of things that the average uh, viewer, and even those of us here relaying it to uh, our viewers out there, don't really need to know, but it's, uh, it's terribly fascinating information. They, uh, incidentally, speaking of viewers, uh, the, there's still a large crowd here for the launch of Apollo 13. There's some uh, 7,500 uh, invited guests, uh, or more than that, I guess. There are 11,500 invited guests from NASA. 7,000 are said to be at, uh, at the uh, VIP uh, viewing stand over on the causeway a couple of miles from here. And here at the uh, VIP uh, site right here at Lunch Control, another 4,500 guests with the principal ones being uh, Vice President Agnew and uh, uh, Billy Brunt, uh, the West German leader who is on a visit to the States and has come down to watch this launch today. He has reason to be proud. So many of the important people in our American space program are from the German rocket program who came here their own volition uh, immediately after the war choosing the United States over Russia, knowing that their talents were going to be required by one of the two uh, conquering nations. There is the uh, press site, uh, which is right outside of our uh, CBS uh, uh, window here. And the VIP site is over on the other side of the vehicle assembly building, or oh, perhaps uh, uh, 5,000 feet from us here. Bruce Morton at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston has a report on how the families of these astronauts are getting along. Bruce? I'm tempted to say this is another report from uh, Measles Central. I don't think we've ever talked about a children's disease this much on a space shot before. Marilyn Lennon is uh, over where you are. She's at the Cape with their four children, one of whom, four-year-old Jeffrey, has come down with the real as opposed to the German measles, but uh, that apparently hasn't interfered with his going to see the launch. Mrs. Fred Hayes is here with their three children. Her sisters come to watch the launch with her. She, incidentally, is expecting their fourth child in June, about a month after her husband is due to get out of quarantine. Jack Swigert, of course, has no family, uh, one of the very few bachelor astronauts, uh, like Ken Mattingly, whom he replaced. But he does have a lot of friends here. We talked uh, for a couple of minutes with the manager of the apartment building where Swigert lives. She... Uh, just couldn't find enough good things to say about him, uh, brave, courteous, kind, all the adjectives in the Boy Scout manual, and said her only regret was that this whole switch happened so late she couldn't get a party together to watch the launch. Walter? As a matter of fact, I understand that uh, Jack didn't even have time to get any of his friends down here to watch uh, this launch. Uh, he uh, was hoping that his uh, father and mother, his father is an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor in Denver, that they could come down, but uh, apparently it was a little late for them to make it, and uh, so they're going to be watching the launch uh, from Denver. I'm uh, amazed to hear you say, Bruce, that uh, uh, one of the level of children, the one down here at the Cape, has come down with measles. Uh, I saw Maryland level last night. I have not had the measles, so I am assuming that uh, the command structure at uh, 
<laughs> CBS will remove me from the uh, rest of this mission and turn it over to uh, my backup man, Wally Sherrod. <laughs> <laughs> I just contacted the measles I got. <laughs> well, you've got to go through a few immunity tests and things like that first, you know, too. Kick, kicking that idea around, I wonder if Jack King might just possibly have the measles, and that's why he's not on the air today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I saw him outside, too, so we're all down. It's a, it's a problem, I guess. Aquarius right now, with 11 minutes before launch, is nestled comfortably, we assume, up there in the third stage of that 360-foot-high Saturn rocket and its payload of the command module and the lunar module. That Aquarius to be withdrawn from the third stage as the rocket speeds toward the moon later this afternoon. The count now, as you see, less than 11 minutes for that launch. Somebody reminded me just a moment ago that there's another 13 in the series of 13s surrounding this mission. Uh, on that 24-hour clock uh, through which the mission is timed at uh, Houston, the manned space center, which is in the central time zone, uh, the time of launch comes out at 13.13 central standard time. And as long as the uh, we're adding uh, to other information we've had here this morning. It's Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, earlier today, I mentioned that Fred Hayes was from Biloxi, and the people of Biloxi pointed out it's Biloxi, which it uh, certainly is. They seem to be right. That's that uh, shot from the similar, the uh, television color camera, similar to the one that they're taking to the moon. And very shortly now, we expect a uh, first on this space coverage. For the first time, uh, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration is uh, permitting a newsman into the launch control center as the launch takes place. The man is an old colleague of ours, a veteran of these launches, Roy Neal. He's with David Snell in the Mission Control Center. Uh, David Snell is in the Mission Control Center in Houston. First, Roy Neal here at Merritt Island. Houston. It's a bright, well-lighted room filled with consoles painted in a light shade of gray. Walls are cream-colored, and there are windows to the rear, huge slanted windows through which people can see the launch pad three and a half miles away. But most of the 500 people in this room won't watch that rocket. They'll be too busy following the launch from console positions, reading out data, looking at black and white television from the 85 camera positions that monitor every critical phase of the Apollo 13 operation. Houston concerns itself with the mechanics of space. Launch control concerns itself with the mechanics of space hardware, and very soon now they'll find out how well their preparations succeed. Roy Neal in launch control. Now to Dave Snell at Mission Control, Houston. Third roll console here in Mission Control has just started calling the roll. As he does, if all is well, the men at the surrounding consoles will push nine buttons lighting nine green bulbs on the director's console. That will mean, very simply, that from flight surgeon Dr. Willard Hawkins to rocket man Bill Brady through Steve Bales, who tracks the tracking gear, all is ready for the handoff from launch control at Cape Kennedy. An added starter here in Mission Control is Ken Mattingly, who had planned to spend this past hour on the launch pad. Astronaut Mattingly, with a big smile and no sign of measles at all, sat down next to capsule communicator Joe Kerwin, whose greeting was, sorry to see you here. David Snell, Mission Control, Houston. There are the engines which will be blasting the Saturn V off in seven minutes and 45 seconds from now. 
million and a half pounds of thrust out of each of those bells. The outside one's gimbal, that is, they turn a little bit uh, to help in the guidance uh, procedures. Uh, the center ones are uh, steady. In six minutes from now, you're going to see this, uh, subject to the weather. And we do have that high haze layer at around 2,500 feet that may obstruct some of our view. But ignition takes place, you know it begins, nine seconds before the actual liftoff. The hold down arms hold the rocket onto the launch pad until uh, pressure is built up, until it can take off. Then they fly away, and uh, after the zero hour, T, the first motion, as the great spaceship that we've seen in these other Apollo uh, launches uh, slowly begins to rise. Uh, immediately, it begins to turn just slightly, yaw it's called, that goes on for about eight seconds, and perhaps you'll be able to see it uh, as it just does that little bit of turning. Uh, then it begins, a, a, that's a slight tilt, and then it rolls, it begins to roll. That goes on for another 20 seconds. Uh, by that time, uh, there's just a half a minute gone by, and it's just barely getting up into the sky at that point. Then it's picking up speed, of course, very rapidly. A minute after the launch, it's reached uh, three uh, 0.7 miles. It's about a mile and uh, 15 hundredths uh, downrange from us, and it's now moving 1,250 miles an hour. Just a few seconds after that, you see that contrail as it uh, uh, builds up maximum dynamic pressure in, uh, in, against the atmosphere that it's attempting to escape. The uh, altitude then is seven, oh, just about eight miles, 7.98 miles. It's three and a half miles downrange from us, and it's up to 1,783 miles an hour. Now that's uh, one minute and 23 seconds into the flight. Two minutes and 15 seconds into the flight, the center engine of the first stage uh, cuts off. A uh, few, uh, oh, not quite uh, 25 seconds uh, later, the outboard engines cut off, and then at two minutes and 45 seconds into the flight, the first stage separates. At that time, the a rocket is 41 and three-quarters miles high and 59 miles downrange and going 6,150 miles an hour. But with the so-called Igor camera, this uh, very long-range camera, which we've used in the past, was denied to us on Apollo 12 because of the heavy clouds. We couldn't see anything, and neither could the camera. We have seen that separation actually take place as far away as it is, 41 miles high and 60 miles downrange. We can get a good look at it. Then uh, at two, uh, right after that, the second stage ignites. And we see that as well, if we've got uh, good visibility. The second stage uh, uh, is, uh, well, the tower is jettisoned first at three minutes and 20 seconds. That's that launch escape tower up the top of the rocket. Uh, it's due to come back uh, and land out in the Atlantic uh, for some uh, six or seven minutes after that. At, uh, at then, let's see, the... Uh, the next is, this, is the uh, second stage engine cutoff. That comes seven minutes and 43 seconds into the flight. Uh, the outboard engines cut off another minute and a half after that. Uh, then the separation of the second stage. And then with the third stage, they go into the uh, Earth orbit. Uh, one and a half trips around the Earth. And then the third stage of the rocket fires to put them on the trajectory toward the moon. That comes. Uh, about uh, four hours into the flight later on in the afternoon after one and a half orbits of the Earth. The firing taking place out over the Pacific. 
Time now, two and a half minutes before the launch of Apollo 13. Test conductor Paul Donnelly has told the astronauts, good luck, head for the hills. <laughs> the automatic launch sequence has begun. Uh, the computers have taken over. And uh, from here on out, uh, the, the countdown is automatic right toward the launch. Of course, it can be called off, as Wally knows, even after those engines are fired. Uh, but uh, we don't expect that. We don't expect that. No. <laughs> we designed that out, in fact. I uh, have a lot to do with that particular design requirement. Really? Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, Once the engines are fired, you have to go. No, no, I mean it that way. The, the malfunction that occurred, oh, uh, a plug oh. pulled out, and that caused yeah, yeah. the engine to shut down yeah. prematurely. Oh. Fortunately, prematurely enough that we hadn't started to lift off, at least. We're going to start listening now to uh, Chuck Hollinshead, the voice of mission control. Uh, One minute to 45 seconds to go. second stage liquid oxygen tank has been pressurized. We'll be making our final transfer from external power source, that is from the external power source at the pad, to the launch vehicle batteries at the T-minus 50-second mark. We'll be keeping an eye on that power transfer at T-minus 50 seconds. The S-4B propellants, now all pressurized. S-4B propellants, that's the third stage of the Saturn V pressurized. One minute, 15 seconds, and counting. The spacecraft equipment now is on its own internal cooling. It's been uh, sharing its cooling, from an, getting its cooling from an external power source up to this time. We're now approaching the T-minus one minute mark. T-minus one minute. T-minus well, one we minute. Even, uh, and counting. We may buffeting today now because of the low cloud cover. Of our countdown. We get quite a shaking the here. That may uh, keep the sound uh, down. You're right. Interesting one. Let's see if the place holds together. As we pass the T-minus 50 second mark, the power transfer takes place. First stage, second stage, third stage, and the instrument unit going to internal power. T-minus 37 seconds, and our count continues to go well. We'll be looking for an ignition of those five first-stage engines at the T-minus 8.9 second mark. We've passed T-minus 30, T-minus 25 seconds, and counting, and Apollo 13 is go. T-minus 20 seconds, T-minus 20 seconds, and counting. 17, guidance release, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, Eight. Ignition sequence has started. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit and we have liftoff at 2.13. The Saturn V building up to 7.6 million pounds of thrust and it has cleared the tower. Running out of time. Mission control. Here we go. <laughs> it's a beauty. It's another beauty. You know, I think this is right, Jack's flight. flight. Uh, the projector looks good. They show <laughs> one half mile an altitude at this time. 13 Houston, go at 30 seconds. seeing it quite well through that haze. 
All sources continue oh. to report where it go. The trajectory on our plot boards is right on the pre-planned -pre line. That's a good one. Looks like a very good one. There, they can see that. And Booster Engineer reports we're now through the region of maximum dynamic pressure, and we're go. That's one of the areas you worry about is that maximum dynamic pressure, because every bit of that outer surface is sensitive to this tremendous pressure that builds up due to the velocity in the atmosphere. Yeah, really, uh, that's probably one of the more traumatic periods for training, at least. 13 Houston, standby for mode one, Charlie. Mark, you're one, Charlie. Mark, one, Charlie. Oh, and good communication. Go for staging. Go for staging, Roger. We're EDS manual. Everything. Now 17 miles coming up on staging. Everything right on uh, time. Staging coming up. That means the cutoff of the uh, first stage engines. Jim Lovell reports the inboard engine has shut down as scheduled. Amazing, that big booster is already history. <laughs> we confirm inboard out 13, you're looking good. Roger. It's due to uh, that big booster splashes down in the... Coming up uh, on 30 miles altitude. Splashes down in the Atlantic uh, in about uh, 20 minutes. You can oh. see uh, there, uh, that's one of the... Uh, uh, static no cameras. Vision. They're washing down. Yeah. Thousands of gallons of water pour forth there to uh, to cool and to put out any little fires that may have started. There 13 Houston, trajectory's good, thrust is good. Satisfy, uh, satisfy those pollution-minded people. Uh, that was hydrogen and oxygen, so we weren't polluting today. That's the interstage. We confirm skirt set. Roger, tower jet, mode two, Jim, looking good. Mode two. Now you see the launch tower off. Now they can look out, too. That loose protective cover goes with that tower. It's like an ice cream launch cone vehicle. over the top. And, and as a result, now the windows are all uh, uh, open to view. This is the first and view they've had. Yes, it is. There's one small window that they can look at, of course, to communicate with people outside the spacecraft when they're on the launch pad. Communicate with visual signals, I mean. Now, all of a sudden, there are two guys that are looking at that same beautiful view you've been hearing us all talk about. And Coming it really is a beautiful minutes. view. We're now at an altitude of 63 miles. That boost cover is on there because uh, uh, the heat builds up uh, on launch to 400, 450 degrees and also scores the windows. Yes, that's exactly right. Keep them clean. You know, another, another interesting thing that maybe not many people realize is that the men are actually heads down at this point. They go into Earth orbit with their heads down, so it's sort of like flying through the top of a loop as you go into orbit. It's a rather unusual attitude. Is it disturbing? No, no, you become acclimated to it, but uh, it was quite a surprise to me after having gone into orbit in Mercury, heads up, and then all of a sudden, on Gemini, I went into orbit heads on my side. <laughs> we finally rotated the full 180 to heads down on this flight. The, uh, that first stage, which is now... Miles downrange now, the uh, ECOM reports... About five minutes, you're looking perfect, over. 13, Roger. Gee, Gee, ECOM reports easy. that the cabin pressure is sealed at 6.1 pounds, communication which is normal. Too. Nice, clear. We're course. now 250 miles downrange, altitude 81 nautical miles. That, uh, that uh, first stage booster is going to plop down the Atlantic about 400... 2.5 miles. I've got it pinpointed ah. exactly uh, downrange from here in another five minutes. 
shipping has been warned to stay out of the way after some of the Apollo 11 parts dropped on a German ship out in the oh, middle really? of the Atlantic. Uh, and yeah. in five minutes, 30 seconds. Have you the heard launch, that the, uh, look very good on the S-4B of Apollo 12 is in Earth orbit rather than in solar orbit? No, it missed just a little bit. And as a result, it went into Earth orbit. It's a way, way, way out, out one. Yeah. Yes, I don't think it'll drop in just now. But. <laughs> Stand by for S-4B to COI capability. S-4B Roger. Roger, you've got it now, Jim. We've got S-4B to COI. I bet there's one guy who isn't too happy. That's no. Kim, Mission Control. That's what you're in the dark shirt. The ball head leaning back there. Was a bit top early. of the picture. Oh, yeah, what he's going to do right now is start training for 16, I'm sure. Go ahead, sir. Training for 16, looking for Chuck Berry, the doctor. And uh, Houston, what's the story on engine five? Jim, uh, Houston, we don't have a story on why the inboard out was uh, early, but the uh, other engines are go, and you're go. Hmm. Roger. Apparently had an early shutdown on the inboard. I'm not sure if he's talking the second stage or not. Uh, actually, the second stage is capable of compensating unless it was a very early. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. That's an interesting thing, in fact. Yeah, it's like minutes, 40 seconds. Still looking good. Your gimbals are good. Trim is good. The fired engines of the first stage, of course, are required to complete the total mission. But if one of those fails at a certain point in time, the other four can maintain enough lift for the vehicle to continue on. Eight plus three eight nominal. S two cutoff time nine or plus four eight. Over. Roger nominal with a little set time nine or four eight on the uh, S two cutoff. That's affirmative, and stand by for S-4B to orbit. Mark, you have S-4B to orbit, Jim. Roger, we have S-4B to orbit. They're now uh, about 111. We good engines on the Saturn second stage. We show an altitude of 96 nautical miles, 545 downrange. It's a little over 600 statute miles downrange. And at 7 minutes, 45 seconds, booster reports, we are go. All four engines remaining, uh, looking good. Great. And that was how CBS News covered the launch of Apollo 13. Now, you will probably notice that there are a couple of things different in how the actual events played out in real life versus how they were played out in the film Apollo 13. Um, number one being in the film, Ken Mattingly, played by Gary Sinise, is portrayed as being there in the area of the Cape to see the launch himself, when in reality, the actual Ken Mattingly was in Houston in Mission Control, being Capcom for the mission. Secondly, in the film Apollo 13, Kevin Bacon's a great actor, but they portrayed Jack Swaggart in the film as someone who was new-new, to the space program versus how the actual Jack Swigert was a part of the third astronaut class. He was responsible for a lot of the hardware applications and the mission protocols for the command module. So, as I said earlier, he was the best person to be there with them when the accident happened. Now... Things in the film that are historically accurate, they play a clip from Dick Cavett. For those of you not familiar, Dick Cavett was a late-night talk show host. He was one of the few actual true rivals to Johnny Carson. 
and they play a clip of him doing his monologue where he points out that three million fewer, well, he debates it, fewer or less, but three million fewer people saw the broadcast of the launch of Apollo 13 versus the launch of Apollo 12, which is interesting because the launch of Apollo 13 was on a Saturday. Secondly, they moved a couple of days to Monday when Apollo 13 is doing their TV broadcast. And then we find out that the networks decide they aren't going to broadcast it live because we've already been to the moon. There's nothing to do here. We're not going to interrupt I Dream of Genie or Here's Lucy for this. And then the broadcast ends. They ask Jack Swagger to turn on the air tanks and then the explosion happens. Now this next clip is from the first person to actually go on air live to inform the American public of what has happened, and that's Jules Bergman at ABC News. He was already there. He was going to go on air to do a half-hour 11.30 recap of the launch and the mission so far when... The explosion happens, and he goes on air around 10.43, 10.45 p.m. Eastern Time. And I say Eastern Time because you probably noticed how it's April, but they keep saying Standard Time when in 2020 it's April and we say Daylight Time. So they still hadn't figured out Daylight Savings yet in 1970. So here is the clip of Jules Bergman, who Marilyn Lovell referred to as the voice of death. That's not an exaggeration. She says that on the audio commentary that she does with her husband for Apollo 13, that she referred to Jules Bergman as the voice of death during this week after the explosion, and they're trying to get them back to Earth. So here is Jules Bergman of ABC News. The Apollo 13 spacecraft has suffered a major electrical failure, leaving the astronauts in no immediate danger but ruling out any chance of any lunar landing as of now. Seconds after inspecting the Aquarius lunar module, Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes had crawled back into their command module and then reported hearing a loud bang followed by a power loss in two of their three fuel cells. They also reported seeing fuel, apparently oxygen and nitrogen, leaking from the spacecraft and reported the gauges for those gases were reading zero. And astronauts Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert are making their way through the tunnel to the lunar module, using it as a lifeboat so they'll have electrical power for their radios on the command module. Apollo 13 is apparently also losing breathing oxygen, and the astronauts may have to use the LEMS oxygen supply. The emergency has ruled out any chance of a lunar landing and could endanger the lives of the astronauts themselves. A frantic scene we're seeing, a scene of deep concentration in mission control in Houston, where this abort plan to get the astronauts back alive has been conceived from well-worked-out trajectory data. The loss of that oxygen supply would seem to indicate to me that something had been hit or exploded back there and also had hit or caused an explosion in the oxygen breathing tanks. Well, it, it appears that that is the uh, situation. If they do have a loss of uh, and are losing oxygen in the, uh, in the command module, that they're could have been uh, an explosion uh, or a ruptured a line, but this is pure speculation uh, on right. our part. 13 astronauts, spacecraft commander Jim Lovell, lunar module pilot Fred Hayes, and command module pilot Jack Swigert are in no immediate danger. 
Hayes and Lovell are inside Aquarius, their command module. Uh, Swigert is inside uh, Odyssey, the command module, we should say, they're in Aquarius, the lunar module. Uh, Hayes and Lovell are existing, living, breathing, uh, the lunar module's oxygen supply. Swigert is living off uh, the command module's oxygen supply, but in reality, the supplies of both vehicles are being traded off since the lithium hydroxide, the air-purifying canisters of the lens, weren't activated. The astronauts didn't have enough time to do that. So the command module's uh, air-purifying canisters that remove carbon dioxide from the air are purifying the LEMS air, and both spacecraft docked together in an attitude like this, have the tunnel open, the hatch open, with two astronauts in the lunar module, one astronaut in the command module. Now, the, the critical decision still has not been made as to which area of the Earth to attempt to get the astronauts back to. Spacecraft uh, uh, Apollo program director Jim McDivitt, we should say, we still think of him as an astronaut from his Apollo 9 flight, was very strong, very firm, that there is enough oxygen supply for the astronauts to live on to again safely get back to Earth. He said there's a small margin left and there's a, a small margin of electrical supply left. So, what is being debated now by Kraft, Schoberg, McDivitt, those very people you saw in that news conference, is when to do this burn, this uh, descent power system engine burn of the LEM, of the LEM engines, when to do it and wh what area of the Earth to strike for. Uh, we should point out that the SPS engine, the service propulsion system engine of uh, the command module, and this is very much the attitude of the vehicle, the way it looks now, this is the service propulsion system engine. That engine is unusable. Whatever catastrophe or whatever near catastrophe took place up there some five hours ago happened back here in the service module. Remember now, we have two vehicles. This is the Apollo command module that the three astronauts were living in at the time it, uh, the emergency took place. Lovell and Hayes had just crawled back from the lunar module, remember that's docked with the lunar module, and gotten back into their Odyssey command module. As they got back in, they heard a loud bang. It was an explosion. It happened back here in the service module, which contains their breathing oxygen. It contains the hydrogen, the oxygen for the fuel cells, the electrical supply that power up this engine, that gives them radios, lighting, everything else they need to live with inside the command module. Whatever happened there, whether it was an explosion, whether a line ruptured, a tank blew up, it knocked out the fuel cells and began bleeding off their oxygen supply at the same time. And the decision was made to abort the flight. The question was how to save the lives of the astronaut. Now, the burn is expected. Our emergency took place at about 55 hours into the flight at about 10 p.m. tonight. The bailout burn, we should call it, though that's not the true name, the emergency burn of the dips engine, is expected at around... 79 hours into the flight at about 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tomorrow night. The question is, how to do it exactly and where to strike for? There are two choices that confront the officials of the space agency. The first choice, if they do the burn at 9.30 p.m. tomorrow night, would land the astronauts at a total elapsed time, a GE time as you, GET time, as you'll hear it referred to, or ground elapsed time, of 142 hours. That's around 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time this Friday afternoon. It would land them on what's called the MPL, or the Mid-Pacific Line, uh, very much in areas we're used to from previous Apollo lunar flights. But if things, continue to, if, if things continue to go bad, if any more developments go haywire aboard the spacecraft, they would then strike for an immediate board. And uh, that abort would burn, would be performed at about 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, and they would strike for a landing area in the mid-Atlantic, the landing area which we've just projected in our own charts here, shows them east of Rio de Janeiro and South America 
in this area in the mid-Atlantic. The problem is, as, as Flight Control Operations Director Sig Schoberg stated, is that there's no recovery force there. There's no Navy ships in this area. And indeed, NASA is now searching for what they call ships of opportunity, merchant vessels or anything that might be available in that area to pick up the astronauts or could get there in time in a day and a half or two to pick them up if indeed the Atlantic landing zone is decided on. Obviously, the Pacific landing zone is the one that's favored. Now, going into the other facts that, as they're known so far, the failure was in the service module we told you about. Uh, they should have enough electrical supply to last them throughout the mission. Uh, they're using the electrical system of the lunar module now to power the lunar module and supply a minimal amount of power to the command module itself with Jack Schweigert. Uh, they're using oxygen from both vehicles and they're using the air purifying system of the lunar module. This maneuver has to work. If it doesn't work, there's almost no place else to go. And as most of you are aware, there is no rescue possible in space flight. All right, so as you can hear in that clip, Jules Bergman was a very serious reporter, and you can understand why Marilyn Lovell referred to him as the voice of death. This next series of audio clips are the nightly news broadcasts from April 14th, April 15th, and April 16th, and they go in order of CBS, NBC, ABC, so that way you have a better idea of what was happening day by day leading Return of Apollo 13 and the Splashdown. Here are the evening news broadcasts starting with April 14th. Right now, uh, with the water that we have in the lunar module descent and ascent tanks, we can follow the profile that we have intended to follow, that is powering down the primary guidance system after the first burn, and power it up two more times for mid courses, and land uh, with still about uh, 12 or 13 hours of water of cooling available. So that is beginning to look like we are in reasonable shape there. We are also uh, studying some ways uh, possibly get some more water into the uh, coolant system and we're not sure how those are going to work yet. On the batteries, we again are planning uh, to follow a course which will end up uh, with about 500 or so amp hours left, which is about 22% of the current or the power available in the lunar module, so that's beginning to look like a fairly comfortable margin. The command module, which is the portion of the vehicle which will re-enter, uh, is as near as we can tell in uh, fine shape. We have electrical power, we have uh, a coolant system, we have a command module RCS system, two of them actually, uh, and all the other systems uh, are still in fine shape. Are the astronauts safe, I think? Is well, uh, they are <clears throat> safe in the sense that uh, we have the situation stabilized now, we think. Uh, I think our only concern about safety is that we're now about 70 hours for home, from home, and we have to continue to keep the situation that way uh, and bring them on home. And there are a lot of imponderables left. They have to get rid of the now useless service module and then of the lunar modules as they approach the Earth's atmosphere on Friday, and that's going to be a tricky maneuver in itself. Okay.
Also, there's a nuclear generator aboard the lunar module that heads for Earth tonight. It was to have been left on the moon to power the scientific experiment package, which was the main goal of this flight after moon landing. Mission Control assures us, though, that that generator poses no threat, that its protective shield will carry it safely through the 5,000-degree heat of re-entry into the atmosphere for what should be an uneventful ocean splashdown. So the situation with the astronauts now, as they prepare for the engine firing aimed at returning them to Earth, let's go to Nelson Benton in the CBS News Grumman Simulator at Bethpage, Long Island. The Apollo 13 crew is riding in the same configuration they would be riding in were they headed for a landing on the moon. Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes are in the lunar module. Jack Swigert is in the command module. But the engine firing they are preparing for this evening is not to put them into an approach pattern for the moon. Instead, it is to put them into a faster trajectory for home. At 9.40 p.m. Eastern Time, the commander will feed by computer power into the LEMS big descent propulsion engine. He will burn that engine for four minutes and 20 seconds, increasing the docked craft's speed by some 2,700 miles per hour. It is naturally different to make this burn this way. It was not planned to use these systems, but it is indeed a contingency plan. It is a plan that was simulated on the flight of Apollo 9 last year. It worked in theory then. It is hoped it will work in practice this time. Walter? One of the real mysteries that perhaps close examination of the data telemeter back to Earth will solve, but which may never be solved, is what caused the explosion that caused this dangerous situation aboard Apollo 13. Was it perhaps a meteorite? At the moment, the thinking is rather against that for one reason. Let's take a look at what happened actually aboard the spacecraft, as nearly as we know. This is the command module up here. This is where the men ride. And this is the service module, which has the environmental supply of air and oxygen, all that sort of thing, water, and supplies the power for this big engine, which is the engine that boosts the spacecraft uh, out of the lunar orbit and back home, a rather important one, of course. And that's what out, they're having to use the lunar engine instead. Now, inside here, we can see how that, what that looks like in there. Here are the cryogenic tanks of liquid oxygen down around 250 degrees below zero. That liquid oxygen is vented into the fuel cells, which then, uh, through liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen uh, joining, make electricity, and a byproduct is water. One of those cryogenic tanks burst and caused an explosion. But why did it burst? Was it hit from the outside, or was there a structural failure or something else that happened inside? They're talking about impact, but on the other hand, the, the pressure went up momentarily just before it went down, and it seemed doubtful that uh, that would have happened if it had been an impact by a meteoroid. However, that's to be studied. That's what happened. This tank in here burst, and the fuel cells were denied the liquid oxygen they need, no electrical power to supply this big engine. They've had to go on the backup power in the lunar modules. By doing that, they can't make the landing on the moon, and are depending now on the lunar module engine to get them home. Just before all that trouble started, Apollo 13 was being described as a nice, easy flight. The astronauts sent back a television broadcast to prove it. Hayes demonstrated the hammock that he would have uh, used uh, while for sleeping while the lunar module Aquarius was on the moon. 
move was so lighthearted that John Swigert then volunteered for the almost obligatory free-floating demonstration of the command module, and that's Jim Lovell there, the space veteran of the group, returning to the Odyssey from the LEM, where Ian Hayes had just completed an inspection trip. It's not likely that these three men have ever, or any three men, have ever weighed such a dramatic battle so fully in the attention of the world. A foreign newspaper said the concern they create is as great as the work undertaken. It creates a human solidarity. Well, the reaction of their companions and families, first to Bruce Morton at Mission Control in Houston. The atmosphere was businesslike, but the quotes were good. This craft, I think the chances are excellent. Like director Glenn Lunny, they're safe, but we have to keep it that way. Throughout the day, the men in this room and the support rooms around it have been experimenting with ways to keep it that way. Computers and simulators have pretended a lot. What happens if you jump the service module? What happens if you come down in the Atlantic or the Pacific? And the talk to the men in space has had a housewifely, budget-conscious ring. We think you can turn off this system, we'll save an amp or two of electricity. But for now, it all seems to be going well. Ed Ravel and Ike Pappas report on the families. Pappas was with Jack Swigert's father. Well, I'm very happy that uh, everything has turned out as well as it has. Of course, I'm still concerned, but uh, I think it's uh, the hope that I have and the faith that I have that everything will be all right. How is Mrs. Schweigert going up? She's, uh, I think, is probably uh, kind of cracking up a little bit with this uh, continual worry. She's probably more emotional than anyone would think. She hides it very well up to a point. Swigerts, a family of deep faith, insist that God is the fourth astronaut up there and that he will guide their son safely home. Mike Pappas, CBS News, Denver. Throughout the day, a steady stream of friends to the homes of astronauts Lovell and Hayes. Some of the tension had eased since the announcement of the accident, but the crisis remained. Wives of other astronauts brought food and flowers to members of the families who maintained their calm. At the Lovell house, young son Jeffrey went off to nursery school with a friend after watching television reports about his father. The wives say they will remain secluded until their husbands have returned safely. They have refused to talk to newsmen. Here in the astronaut compound, a spirit of togetherness prevails this day. And so it is a time for waiting for the families of the astronauts, and in that time, they seem to be holding up well. Ed Rabel, CBS News, Seabrook, Texas. This most harrowing of man's adventures in space gripped all Americans today, and that includes the President of the United States. Dan Rather reports. The president this evening drove through heavy rain to the Goddard Center, 18 miles outside Washington, for an extensive briefing on the drama in space. Talk included speculation about what happened to the spacecraft. Dr. John Clark and William Schneider of the Goddard facility and former astronaut Michael Collins, who accompanied the president, all answered questions. Mr. Nixon was told immediately at the White House last night when trouble first developed. He stayed up past midnight getting reports and was awakened at 3 a.m. for updated information. During today, frequent reports were relayed from Houston. The president praised the astronauts' grace under pressure and the operation of the entire NASA space team under stress. The president is going ahead with a White House dinner tonight for the visiting prime 
Prime Minister of Denmark, but a scheduled performance by pianist Ferranti and Teicher has been cancelled to allow Mr. Nixon to monitor tonight's spacecraft rocket firing. Whether the President goes ahead with his scheduled Vietnam report to the nation on Thursday depends on when, how, and if the astronauts return. Dan Rather, CBS News, Washington. Summing up, the abbreviated voyage of Apollo 13 is going all right now, with space experts saying chances of getting the crew home safely are good, providing nothing more goes wrong. The next crucial maneuver comes up later tonight, to be covered live by CBS News at 9.30 Eastern Time. Some thoughts now on Apollo 13 from Eric Severide, who is concerned that this unhappy flight will be remembered long after the tension and the excitement of the moment of ease. Eric? Life and work go on here in the capital as everywhere else, while the three imperiled young men circle the moon and the earth in life. But the quiet tension is felt everywhere, and few can address their work with full attention. The accident has come at a bad time for this government and the people in it. Too much has been happening these last two weeks or so. Too much of it adverse, painful, and acrimonious. Everyone is thinking of the three men, first of all, but there is a kind of sub-knowledge that if a tragedy occurs, it will be one of the most dramatic and dramatized of all time, and could only deepen the spiritual miasma that already weighs upon this national capital. So there are a few rather feeble attempts here and there to guess what may happen when this drama is ended. Whether the men make it back or not, there are bound to be weeks of investigation, and the Apollo programs as a whole are bound to be affected. Had this happened during the first moon landing attempt, efforts would probably have been redoubled. But Americans have twice walked the moon already, and the public mood has changed. Moon exploration still excites the scientists for valid scientific reasons, but not many others outside their ranks. That very difficult question may be raised on a national scale. When is enough enough? As it has long since been raised concerning both nuclear weapons and the Vietnam War. And this chilling adventure in space should at the least end the general feeling that there is a mechanical, mathematical perfectionism about these fantastic flights. It is strange that the feeling took hold in view of John Glenn's danger when a re-entry device came loose, the narrow escape of Armstrong and Scott when their vehicle went into a violent spin, and of course the fire on the pad that took three astronauts' lives three years ago. Technical failures are human failures. Computers do only what men tell them to do. But if a meteorite struck Apollo 13, that was truly chance over which men have no control. So the three astronauts head toward home across the desert of space, their oxygen and water running low. Perhaps the story will be seen one day as a parable. This Earth is also a spinning spaceship. All of us are astronauts, and our oxygen and water are also diminishing. But we have no place to go. Walter? And that's the way it is. Tuesday, April 14th, 19th. Apollo 13, its power source is badly damaged. Its mission to the moon ended. Its astronauts under a strain more severe than any others have yet endured. Begins its return to Earth tonight, landing in the Pacific Ocean, 1,500 miles northeast of New Zealand, shortly after noon Friday, if all goes well. If the engine of the moon landing ship, the mission's only effective source of power of maneuvering now, performs correctly. If the engine does not perform, as it's hoped, Apollo 13 will land somewhere else, possibly in the Indian Ocean. At a news conference today in Houston, flight director Glenn Lunny answered questions about the dangers the astronauts still face. How critical is this situation right now, in your opinion? Well, 
uh, I think it is as critical, perhaps probably the most critical situation we've faced so far in the manned spaceflight program uh, in flight. We are about 70 hours from home, and uh, we think we have uh, uh, the situation in control. We've projected the uh, consumables, as I've described, and uh, we have a plan for carrying out the rest of the mission. But uh, uh, there's going to be no relaxation at all, as far as that goes, from now until splash. What was the most critical single thing that, that uh, had to be done last night? Was it uh, getting that reference platform set up on the limb before the collapse of the command and service module power? Well, in my opinion, the most critical thing was uh, uh, people keeping cool and getting done what had to be done. Uh, and I think we were able to do that. Uh, I think especially the pilots remained cool throughout the whole thing. And uh, the... Uh, so far, we've been able to stabilize the situation, and we have every intention of keeping it that way. Apollo 13 is now in lunar gravity, traveling at about 3,500 miles an hour, less than 4,000 miles from the surface of the moon. Two astronauts are working in the lunar module, and the other is on watch in the darkened command module. They've been going through a checklist, preparing for the firing of a rocket engine, a firing designed to increase their speed on the trip home. First, they must swing around the dark side of the moon, where they may do some navigational work, looking at stars to verify their exact position. That takes place at 7.20, 7.21 to be exact, p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The spacecraft will be behind the moon for 25 minutes, out of contact, and then it will emerge headed on a course for home. At about 9.40 this evening, Eastern Time, Apollo 13 will fire the rocket in the lunar module, which will increase its speed to about 3,000 miles an hour and get it home a bit sooner. Plans for a super-fast return to bring the men back on Thursday instead of on Friday, using a lengthy 10-minute burn tonight of the rocket engine. Those plans have been abandoned since they would use too much fuel and no one is sure what a sudden increase in acceleration might cause. As it is, everything is working on Apollo 13, but the ship is crippled. It is still perilously short on supplies. And while the feeling here is that the men will be brought back safely to a landing in the South Pacific, nobody is taking any chances at all. The Navy's rescue ships, including the aircraft carrier Iwo Jima, are speeding to the rendezvous in the Pacific at this moment. Apollo 13 got into trouble shortly after 10 o'clock Eastern Time last night. Something happened which cut off the power and oxygen supply in the command ship. At midnight, the astronauts were told to use the moon landing ship. At 3.42 a.m., they were ordered to make the critical firing to put the mission in an orbit that, it would, that would let it get back to Earth. That firing was a success. Had it not been, the men would have died in space. Minutes before the malfunction was discovered, the astronauts made their last television broadcast to Earth.
by transit out to the mountain. And it's uh, rather odd to see it floating like this in uh, in Odyssey while it's playing uh, the same from 2001. The astronauts, cheerful and sounding worry-free, entered their television show and relaxed, as did the men in mission control. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh-huh. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. We've had a main beam bus undervolt. Roger, main beam undervolt. We had a pretty large bank associated with the um, caution and warning there. And as I recall, main B was the one that uh, had a amp spike on it uh, once before. Roger, Fred. Yeah, that, that jolt uh, must have rocked uh, uh, the sensor on uh, see now in 02 quantity 2 it's uh, was oscillating uh, down around 20 to 60 percent now it's full scale high again roger about 10:15 eastern time last night something and no one yet knows what caused an oxygen tank inside the service module to rupture and the loss of oxygen from this tank immediately created two problems since there was no oxygen from this tank to mix with hydrogen from these tanks, two of the three fuel cells that generate electricity for the command module failed. The other problem, of course, was that the supply of breathing oxygen for the three astronauts inside the command module was cut off. There was, however, a supply of electricity and oxygen inside the lunar module, the portion intended to land on the moon, and the tunnel between the two was open and they had breathing air, and they've been moving back and forth between the two cents. Because of the loss of power, the rocket engine on the command module cannot be fired. So the descent rocket of the lunar module is being used to make the maneuvers that will bring them back to Earth. Now, since the command module is designed to come back to Earth without its service module, it does have a supply of electricity and oxygen to meet that limited need once the service module has been dropped away. That supply, however, has not and probably will not be tapped until they re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. Many countries offered help, and the State Department said it would ask for it if it were needed. The House and Senate passed resolutions calling on the American people to pray tonight for the astronauts. President Nixon drove through the rain from the White House to the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, to be kept up to date on the mission. Earlier, Mr. Nixon had spoken twice by telephone with Dr. Thomas Paine, head of the Space Agency in Houston. A White House spokesman said the president was concerned and hopeful that the astronauts would return safely. Tonight, a state dinner for the Danish prime minister will be held as scheduled, but the planned entertainment has been canceled. The families of most of the astronauts remained in seclusion, but in Denver, the father of command pilot Swigert spoke with newsmen. That they have enough oxygen uh, certainly takes a load off my mind. And uh, hoping that the electrical supply will hold out uh, uh, is another factor. Did you sit up most of the night with your wife? Yes. What was your reaction? What were your reactions earlier, Doctor, uh, when you uh, first heard there, were tr- there was trouble aboard? Well, 
I, I could hardly believe that everything was going along so well and then with a sudden uh, change, but of course that happens in my profession too. Everything goes along very nicely and it didn't change there in a moment's notice. Had you ever talked to your son about uh, something happening during his flying years? Well, of course, yes. He's had uh, several, well, I suppose they're narrow escapes. He's had to hit the barrier twice there where his brakes would fail. And then when he was uh, working with the North American and developing this wing to land the spacecraft on the ground, I know that he was in some very definite narrow, tight spots then. There was little opportunity for the wives of the astronauts to be alone on this difficult day. There was a great deal of coming and going at the home of astronaut Jim Lovell near the Space Center. The family minister visited this morning and conducted communion services. Mrs. Lovell remained inside her home all day, but she did send the children to school. at the home of astronaut Fred Hayes, one of the first visitors today was Apollo 12 astronaut Alan Bean. He spent part of the morning with Mrs. Hayes and the children, assuring them Apollo 13's problems had stabilized. After the visit, Bean talked to newsmen on the Hayes front lawn. Barring any future difficulties, and we don't foresee any, that uh, they're going to be able to have a pretty uh, steady trip home. So I think that they're, they're real happy about that. I spent some time talking with the... Uh, the three children, they had some questions that uh, actually were pretty technical, and uh, kids nowadays are pretty technical-minded, and uh, tried to answer them and make them understand a little bit better where the oxygen was coming from, where they were getting the water, and what had happened uh, to some of the things that they had been concerned about. I think they're pretty happy now. Once again, here is the latest on the flight of Apollo 13. Waiting now at the manned spacecraft center at Houston for the Apollo 13 spacecraft to lose contact as it goes behind the moon. That happens at 7.21 Eastern Standard Time, and the trip around the dark side of the lunar surface is expected to take about 25 minutes. After that happens, the astronauts will get ready for another firing of their lunar module rocket engine, a burn which is designed to increase their speed for the trip home, for landing in the Pacific on Friday. The main objective now is to save every possible amount of oxygen, electricity, and especially water. Supplies are adequate for the crippled spacecraft and its crew, but only adequate. Officials here at Houston seem more confident now that the astronauts will get home safely, but there are many dangerous hours ahead, and everyone here is breathing very carefully. NBC will provide special coverage of the flight immediately following the Huntley-Brinkley report at 7 o'clock Eastern Time. Good night for NBC News. The story on Apollo 13 as of now is this. All three astronauts are in good condition. Although they are proceeding on a course that will take them around the moon in a partly crippled spacecraft. NASA says that while it's the most serious problem encountered in any manned space flight to date, the astronauts should be able to pass behind the moon and after another mid-course correction tonight on the front side of the moon, return safely to a splashdown in the Pacific on Friday afternoon. The astronauts are conserving precious oxygen, water, and electricity, but the scientists say that if nothing else goes wrong, there are adequate supplies of all three for a safe landing. Flight controller Glenn Lunney and other officials met with newsmen in Houston today. How critical is this situation right now, in your opinion? Well, 
Uh, it, I think it is as critical, perhaps probably the most critical situation we've faced so far in the manned spaceflight program uh, in flight. We are about 70 hours from home, and uh, we think we have uh, uh, the situation in control. We've projected the uh, consumables, as I've described, and uh, we have a plan for carrying out the rest of the mission, but uh, uh, there's going to be no relaxation at all, as far as that goes, from now until splash. I really couldn't pick anything that was more critical than anything else, but I think it's the time factor now that we're just going to have to watch and be sure that we continue to operate the vehicles in such a fashion that allows us to, to live and operate effectively that long in the lunar module, or else we're going to have to go on the command module and start using those batteries, which we don't want to do. In my opinion, the most critical thing was uh, uh, people keeping cool and getting done what had to be done. Uh, and I think we were able to do that. Uh, I think especially the pilots remained cool throughout the whole thing, and uh, the, uh, so far we've been able to stabilize the situation, and we have every intention of keeping it that way. How much more time do you have to mull over all the problems and decide uh, or another what you're going to do? As you would expect, and I'm sure you who have covered the flight know, we'd like to be sure that we've thought out all options as long as possible, but I would suspect that uh, within several hours of the planned burn, we will have to uh, make up our minds what kind of a burn we want to do and then concentrate on that. As a matter of fact, a number of times last night, uh, we had a number of problems, but, but uh, at some point you have to stop considering all the options and stick to getting the one thing that uh, has the highest priority, getting that done like securing the lunar module and getting it ready to take care of the pilots. Uh, and I think we're going to decide several hours before this upcoming uh, propulsion opportunity. Uh, and uh, then we're just going to press on fairly single-mindedly with that approach. Flight controller Glenn Lunny was talking about a decision that was made this afternoon, and the decision basically was whether to attempt a landing on Thursday afternoon or on Friday, and the decision has now been made to go for the Friday afternoon landing. President Nixon was kept informed all through the night and the day of late developments in the flight. The president is described as concerned, but enormously impressed by the performance of the astronauts and the scientific teams on the ground. This afternoon, Mr. Nixon left the White House for a visit with some of the scientists involved. ABC's Bill Gill has a report. Telephone reports were just not enough for the president. So late today, he drove to the Goddard Space Center near Washington for a full explanation of just what went wrong, why it happened, and what to expect from here on. White House aides tell us that the president's concern for the safety of Apollo 13 astronauts altered his schedule throughout the day. He interrupted official talks this morning with a Danish foreign minister to telephone the Houston Space Center, later canceled plans for entertainment at tonight's state dinner for Prime Minister Hilmar Bonsgaard, feeling that this is no time for levity. Tonight's state dinner will itself be interrupted while the president watches a crucial rocket firing aboard Apollo 13. The president remains concerned, we are told, but somewhat reassured by his talks with scientists this afternoon. Bill Gill, ABC News, Washington. In Houston, the wives and children of astronauts Lovell and Hayes have remained in their homes, naturally following every moment of the flight emergency. In Denver, J. Leonard Swigert, father of astronaut John Swigert, talked about the situation with Bob Nelson of station KB-TV. 
Well, I'm very happy that uh, everything has turned out as well as it has. Of course, I'm still concerned, but uh, I think this, uh, with the hope that I have and faith that I have, that everything will be all right. Well, what is your philosophy for greeting the situation? Well, I just have to rely upon my faith and my uh, hope and uh, knowledge that NASA's pretty good and they won't uh, leave any stone unturned to bring them back. And if anything's possible between the astronauts up there and the men working on the ground, they'll do everything possible. How is Mrs. Weiger? She's, uh, I think, is probably uh, kind of cracking up a little bit with this uh, continual worry. She's probably more emotional than anyone would think. She hides it very well up to a point. ABC's extended coverage of the <clears throat> Apollo 13 emergency will be brought to you whenever new facts become available. And in any event, we will be on the air tonight live at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, in time to cover the next critical burn of the lunar module descent engine. The Apollo 13 spaceship is slightly off course as it limps home tonight. It's now about a quarter of the way back from the moon. But its present course would not return it to Earth, you see here. It would miss by about 104 miles, and the crew would perish, in that case, in space. That's why a critical burn to correct its course is scheduled for about 11.43 Eastern Time tonight. Not only must the astronauts get back to Earth, but they must enter along the line you see here. Now, if they're too steep by more than a degree off that course, the spaceship would be crushed by the Earth's atmosphere. If they're too shallow by more than a degree when they hit the atmosphere, about 80 miles up, they will bounce off back into space and not be recoverable. But what are their chances of making that burn successfully? I spoke about that a few minutes ago with Leo Krupp, test astronaut for North American Rockwell. Leo, do you have any doubt that the uh, facilities they have aboard, the LAM, and the LAM descent propulsion system engine, can make the fine adjustments to uh, set them right on the proper course for entry? Uh, no, sir, Waller. I have the utmost confidence that this engine is going to perform properly. The burns they've made so far, uh, the one to get back on the free return and the one to accelerate, have worked out very well. The engine's performed good. Uh, the guidance appears to be functioning properly, and they're, they're coming in on a fairly good trajectory right now, so I see no reason why uh, further mid-course corrections with the descent propulsion stage engine shouldn't work out fine. And, and you also do not see any doubt that they have the capability of aligning the platform, that, of, that is, of aiming the spacecraft for that little keyhole in the sky properly with the facilities they do have available to them now. The fact that the two burns have come out very close, I think the guidance is, is satisfactory, and, uh, of course, ground tracking is on them, and, and if there is a, a deviation, uh, ground tracking will realize this, and they can make another mid-course correction to take care of it, and I think... Uh, that between the cooperation of the astronauts in the air and the, the ground tracking that's being done by NASA, the trajectory people on the ground, I think they can get this trajectory down so the entry angle will be satisfactory. The astronauts are strictly rationing their use of power, air, and water, and at the present rates of usage, they have a margin to assure their safety. But there isn't margin for any more problems as serious as the one Monday night that got them into this trouble in the first place. There are a lot of little problems, though, that are nagging at Apollo 13, and Bruce Morton tells us about them from the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. Go! 
Pioneers turn out happier today than they did Monday night or Tuesday, but inside the windowless mission control building, they've been recording a series of small problems. The lithium hydroxide canisters, which clean the air, come in two shapes, land and command module. They're not interchangeable. The crew had to rig a Rube Goldberg device to make them interchangeable. It worked. One of the countless pressure valves, called a burst disk, is expected to burst. It normally does that on the moon, no particular problem anticipated in space. A bump in the LEMS descent stage, more gases venting from the crippled service module. Trouble rotating the spacecraft so as to distribute the sun's heat evenly, leading, since they're on directional antennas, to sometimes staticky communications. All little problems. They haven't clouded the optimism, but they have already produced demands from some officials here for stiffer quality controls, better checkout procedures before the next Apollo flies. Bruce Morton, CBS News at the Manned Spacecraft Center, Houston. Early this evening, still another problem cropped up. A battery aboard the LEM began overheating and had to be switched off. Now that would cut that precious margin of power in the LEM if it has to be left off. Studies are underway as to just how serious that problem might be. White House News Secretary Ziegler said there is no need for other nations to assist in recovering the Apollo 13 crew, although we do appreciate the offer, he said. But the Soviet Union sent two merchant ships toward the scheduled splashdown site in the South Pacific, and Britain sent six naval vessels toward the alternate site in the Indian Ocean. France, the Netherlands, Italy, Spain, West Germany, South Africa, Brazil, and Uruguay have put their navies on the alert. The entire world was following the return of Apollo 13. 10,000 joined Pope Paul in prayer in St. Peter's Basilica. And special prayers were said at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. CBS will broadcast periodic reports on Apollo 13 throughout the evening. David Brinkley will report later in the program. I'm Chet Huntley, NBC News. The Apollo 13 astronauts traveled back toward Earth today at a speed of more than 3,200 miles an hour. If everything goes well, from now on, they will land in the Pacific, 1,500 miles northeast of New Zealand, shortly after 1 p.m. Eastern Time Friday. But they are traveling in a damaged command ship, powered by the moon landing ship attached to it. And they've had to overcome all sorts of difficulties by improvising, which so far they have been able to do. Late tonight, they are scheduled to make one more course correction. At about 11.45 this evening, Eastern Time, they will twist the spacecraft around in space and aim its rocket engine at the Earth. They will fire that rocket engine for about 15 seconds, which will reduce the speed of the spacecraft by a tiny fraction, about five miles an hour. This will be enough to aim the spacecraft a little closer to the Earth, about 80 miles closer, so that the gravity of the Earth will start to bring down the spacecraft on Friday. On the present course, without correction, the spacecraft would not be captured by Earth gravity, and it wouldn't land. But this is a standard maneuver, and if it isn't made precisely tonight, they will do it again. In the meantime, there is apparently some heating trouble in an electrical battery in the lunar module. No telling now how serious this might be, since the alarm bell just rang in the spacecraft and was reported by Commander Lovell. Apollo 13 is now 190,000 miles, roughly, from the Earth, traveling at about 2,900 miles an hour, and the men are comfortable. Today in Houston... The flow is good, the, the temperatures are, are good. In fact, they even commented they were a little bit chilly up in the command module. Uh, so as far as the, uh, as the quality of the air that they have, it's, it's very good. Uh, they've uh, 
I don't recall if all of them have mentioned eating. I know Lovell and Hayes talked about they were eating, and so I'm sure that they're they're getting enough food. That's no problem. And essentially, the the uh, situation that we are in allows them to sleep whenever they want to, as you've already probably seen. Uh, in fact, someone was asking me about the. Uh, uh, about the flight plan, and it's kind of difficult to do that because uh, you, you say, well, you sleep this long, except you find out that the guy sleeps for half that long, and he wakes up, and he feels pretty good, and so he lets somebody else sleep. So essentially, they, there's no, we have no constraints in this area to speak of, and uh, they're able to take their rest as they, as they need it. And, and I, I think that their condition is, uh, uh, they've been tired up until we did that mid-course. But since that time, uh, they've been getting rest, and they will get more rest. And, and I think it, we, we'll see a, a very definite improvement shortly. While the men in the spacecraft are still all right and the ship is on its way home, Apollo 13 is still walking a tightrope far out in space. Here at the Command Spacecraft Center today, they took one whole shift of flight controllers out of mission control and set them to thinking up ways to get around the problems still ahead. One of these problems involves the air they breathe. They have set up a jury-rigged system of cleaning the air of carbon monoxide, and while this is working, no one is certain that it will go on working. There is the problem of electricity in the command module and in the lunar module. There are uncertainties there as of now. And there are some pieces of metal apparently blown apart by Monday night's fuel cell explosion, which are flying alongside the spaceship. If one of these pieces of metal should lock onto the heat shield during re-entry, it could, in its burning, burn a dangerous hole in the shield. Those are some of the reasons, and there are others, why nobody is taking any chances and nobody is thinking of anything other than getting these men home safely. Since the Apollo 13 astronauts did not reach the moon, there will be no quarantine for them after they land on Friday. Plans call for the three men to be flown by helicopter to Samoa, stay overnight there, and then be flown directly to Houston on Saturday. Today, around the world, there were expressions of hope that the crew's return will be safe. At the Vatican, at the White House, and in almost every city, people prayed for the lives of the spacemen. The mood of the Apollo 13 crew today was disciplined and calm, except for some irritation that Monday's accident had kept them from reaching the moon. The burned-out stage of their Saturn V rocket did get there. It crashed with great force last night, causing a moonquake. The shake, several minutes long, registered on the seismometer that had been left on the moon by Apollo 12 last November. By the way, uh, Aquarius, we see the results now from... Uh seismometer looks like your booster just hit the moon and it's uh, rocking it a little bit Over. well he's hope it worked up this flight Houston, there's a suburb called Clear Lake. It is home to astronauts James Lovell and Fred Hayes and many other astronauts. It looks like a lot of suburbs here, and if there is any tension about Apollo 13, it is not readily seen, but as in all of Houston, there is deep concern. Mrs. Marilyn Lovell has not talked to reporters. NASA officials say she has asked few questions. They say she doesn't need to. She's knowledgeable. She's done her homework. 
Mrs. Mary Hayes, who was expecting in two months, went to have lunch with the wife of astronaut Alan Bean today. Both wives have been visiting and visited by other astronauts because that's the way it works here. Last night in the Astrodome, Houston played Los Angeles. 8,000 fans took note of the president's request for silent prayer in a stadium not known for silence. astronauts and their crippled ship are back within the grasp of the Earth's gravity tonight, though they're still a long way off. Their situation is largely unchanged from what it was this time yesterday. The men are in good condition, somewhat tired, and through much of today, they were very busy. The lunar module, their lifeboat, remains in excellent shape. To place themselves on the proper course for a precision landing, sometime tonight, the astronauts must successfully fire the lunar module descent engine. A further report now from ABC science editor, Jules Bergman. The mid-course correction tonight is critical. Apollo 13, on the course it's presently flying, will miss the Earth by 94 miles. Mid-course burns are part of every Apollo flight, but on most previous Apollo lunar missions, the free return burn, the one done last night, has been accurate enough so that the spacecraft would have hit the Earth with no further corrections. Not so with Apollo 13. It needs the mid-course or else. But there are three different sets of engines that can do the maneuver. The lunar module's descent engine, its ascent engine, and even its reaction control system thrusters. It's the one area where the crippled spaceship has some redundancy, some backup methods left. Ironically, if all had gone well, the lunar module would have landed on the moon tonight and Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes would be performing their first moonwalk. Instead, they're limping back across space in the LEM with a crippled command module in tow, alive only because they've managed to improvise systems to save their lives with brilliant on-the-spot help from the ground. The astronauts ran out of air purifying canisters, lithium hydroxide units they're called, in the LEM. It isn't designed to handle the air for two ships. And inside our own LEM mock-up at ABC Space Headquarters, Grumman test pilot Dick Sprague and spacecraft technician Gary Morris are showing us just what's keeping the astronauts alive. The Apollo 13 crew are using air purifiers from the command module in a Rube Goldberg setup that works. Dick, how does that system work? Well, we have here an actual lunar module CO2 canister, Jules, and the command module one is larger than this. That's why they can't be interchanged. So this bag uh, over it, circulating air through it and through the canister, is, is clear, clarifying the air very well. Will it last long enough to get them down safely? Oh, well, certainly. There are 15 of these larger canisters on board the command module, and two of them are being used at, at the time to bring the uh, CO2 content way down. And Dick, how is the LEM, that lifeboat, holding up? Uh, as you said, it's not designed for this long lifetime support, but uh, it's going to bring them back in excellent shape. Very good, Dick Sprague. We'll see you later on tonight and through the flight. Space agency officials have begun investigating the explosion that rocked Apollo 13 and now feel it was a liquid oxygen tank that blew up. How it happened, they don't know. They don't think it was a meteorite hit, but they're not sure and perhaps never will be. 
The critical issue for now is getting Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert back alive. And while the Lem is holding up, so far, they're far from out of danger. They'll stay in the Lem until the last possible minute before re-entry Friday morning. The command module batteries only have a few hours of power left in them. And that's what has space agency officials really worried. After they separate from the Lem, there can be no delays and no follow-ups. For now, the critical step is tonight, with that mid-course correction burn just before midnight Eastern time, and it's all important. This is Jules Bergman at ABC Space Headquarters. Expressions of concern and offers of help are coming in from all over the world. At the Vatican, Pope Paul led 10,000 worshipers in prayer today. There was a special service at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the holiest of Jewish shrines. Russia has ordered two merchant ships to head for the expected recovery area, and assistance has been offered by six European countries and by Uruguay, which has a navy of exactly three ships. ABC News will be back on the air at any time that developments warrant to bring you full details of the return flight of Apollo 13. The crippled Apollo 13 spacecraft is winding up its final full day in space tonight, apparently on course for a Pacific Ocean splashdown around 1.07 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow, 555 miles southeast of Samoa. The latest word is that there are ample supplies of water, oxygen, power, and other consumables. The astronauts themselves are of reasonably good cheer, but when they must work in the command module, they are cold. It's down to around 45 degrees, and they are sleeping huddled together in the warmer lunar module. Each moment that ticks away is another in which nothing more has gone wrong to endanger their lives. The next critical moments come tomorrow morning. Just about 7 a.m. Eastern time, they'll climb back into their command ship and once again turn its power on, power that has been down except for intermittent tests since Monday night's explosion. That power has to work, and the astronauts will breathe easier when it does. Then just before 8.30 a.m., they'll jettison the long dead service module, and two and a half hours later, the lunar module that has been their lifeboat back from the moon. Out at Bethpage, Long Island, Nelson Benton is with test astronaut Scott McLeod of Grumman and Leo Krupp of North American Rockwell. And they can show us tomorrow's critical maneuvers. The critical pre-entry activity begins about four and one-half hours before scheduled splashdown shortly after 8 a.m. Eastern Time. It is a matter of separating the docked lunar module and command module from the service module. It must be done in such a manner that there is no danger of further contact between the two, but it must be done delicately enough that the homeward-bound trajectory is not disturbed. It takes teamwork from both the command module and from the lunar module. Our pilots are Leo Krupp and Scott McLeod. Leo, Scott, stand by for a one-foot-per-second thrust to the command module. Roger, standing by for service module separation. Mark. Point five. Point seven. One point zero mark. Command service module sep. Reversing thrust. Point five. Point seven. Mark, one point zero. Roger, Scotty. The next separation comes after the entire crew is back in the command module. The separation of the command module from the lunar module. Leo? Uh, Nelson, uh, the final limb set will occur one hour before we enter the Earth's atmosphere. At this time, the command module systems will be all powered up. All three crew members will be back in the command module. We'll have the tunnel hatches back in place. However, the tunnel hatch, the tunnel is to the limb is going to be left pressurized. When they're ready to separate the limb, 
these two, two switches on the main panel will be actuated, which will separate the two vehicles, and the pressure that's in the tunnel will force the two vehicles apart, causing the lamb to drift out to a safe distance. Now, this is exactly the way Tom Stafford separated on Apollo 10, and it worked very successfully, so it, it has been flight tested. The only difference in this one will be that we will not have a service module aboard, so the attitude of the command module may vary slightly, but this should not be a problem. If these separations and related activities go all right to this point, from here on, it's just a matter of re-entering the way they always have. Walter? That's right. After the LEM is jettisoned by a couple of hours, the command module plunges through the Earth's atmosphere to its splashdown. The weather at the splashdown area is reported good tonight, and besides the recovery, recovery carrier Iwo Jima, four Russian ships are said to be nearby. Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon, once faced death in space in his wildly tumbling Gemini 8 flight four years ago. Today, newsmen at Houston ask him about a spaceman's secret thoughts at such moments of crisis. That concern is a real one. It always exists in the back of your mind, but I suspect uh, that the attitude that they reflect over, over the communicational loops reflects what they're really thinking, namely, they're trying to do each and every job precisely as well as they can, not overlook anything, such that uh, the situation that you conjure won't happen at least as a result of their own doing. It would have to be uh, some, you know, unavoidable. I ask if, if you ever felt uh, any similar doubts, uh, any doubts that this sort of thing could happen to you just as you were about to begin your mission, or while it was underway for that matter? No, when you're flying, you don't, uh, you don't concern yourself with those things. Those judgments and decisions are made before flight. Uh, when you are reviewing the systems and the flight plan, and any time you find what you think might be a weakness, you attack it at, at that time during the preparation phase. And once, uh, once you lift off, you don't worry about those alternatives anymore. You just do the best job that you can uh, with the commitment you've already made at that point. In spite of the tensions that have been ever-present since Apollo 13 ran into trouble Monday night, the astronauts' families maintain at least a surface calm. Ed Rabel reports from Houston. If you are four-year-old Jeffrey Lovell, you probably do not share the anxiety of others in your family about your father, and you go to nursery school with few cares. But if you are Mary Hayes, expecting your fourth child this summer, and your husband is a rookie astronaut in a crippled spacecraft, you try to avoid the anxiety by going to the home of a friend. Marilyn Lovell, whose husband is commander of Apollo 13, also comes to the get-together at Chief Astronaut Deke Slayton's house. How are you today? Later, both wives pose for pictures, but will not answer reporters' questions. If the flight had been normal, they might have been talking about their husband's walk on the moon. In Denver, the parents of bachelor astronaut John Swigert said they were feeling great after last night's successful burn. Russia's cosmonauts sent a message to the astronauts saying, We are following your flight with great attention and anxiety. We wish wholeheartedly your safe return to our Mother Earth. Our coverage of the final hours of Apollo 13 begins with the CBS Morning News at 7 a.m. Eastern Time and continues right through splashdown and recovery.
plane is now within 95 miles of the Earth and speeding toward a landing in the Pacific. But there still are a number of critical things which must be done successfully before the astronauts are hauled up on the carrier Iwo Jima. They must make a small course correction tomorrow morning, then cast off the surface module. After that, they must get rid of the moon landing ship which powered their trip back to Earth, and only then, finally, will they re-enter the atmosphere and parachute down into the ocean shortly after one o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Time. The astronauts are cold, but still safe, speeding toward the Earth at more than 4,000 miles an hour. The low temperatures in the spacecraft caused by a reluctance to use electricity for heat are an annoyance, but not yet a serious problem. One of the astronauts told the manned spacecraft center here in Houston this afternoon, it is like living in a refrigerator. Much of the astronauts' day was spent today getting instructions from mission control on tomorrow's maneuvers, detailed and complicated instructions because the sequence of events to be carried out in space tomorrow has never been carried out before. Here at the Manned Spacecraft Center, another theory has been advanced which could explain the explosion of an oxygen tank which led last Monday night to this emergency. It is theorized that some sort of foreign matter may have been in the oxygen tank. The troubles of Apollo 13 have not shaken the confidence of other astronauts, at least not in public. Many of them have publicly stated their confidence in the space program. Inherently expect a certain amount of these things uh, to occur, and it's no, no great surprise. Perhaps I think we're more surprised when things run perfectly well, as they did on Apollo 11. As a matter of fact, I'm still somewhat amazed that everything worked so well during that flight. Uh, we uh, spend a great deal of our time in preparing for uh, these kinds of situations. Usually when they do happen, they're a little bit different than anything we ever prepared for, though. Uh, I, I don't fault uh, the design engineers or the test teams in this case for this particular incident. I'm, I'm uh, sure that it was just one of those uh, million-to-one shots that uh, you just can't properly prepare for and don't adequately know how to prepare for in this case. Tomorrow morning, Eastern Time, the spacecraft will approach the Earth looking like this. This is the way it looks now. About five hours before it reaches the Earth's atmosphere, the men in the command module will jettison this part here called the command, the service module, and it'll float away in space. That will leave these two parts of the spacecraft, the LEM here, and the command module here. About an hour before they hit the atmosphere, they will separate the LEM from the command module, and you all remember this, we've seen this on previous flights coming in with the men aboard. And here's one of the men who was aboard the last time, Captain Alan Bean, astronaut on Apollo 12. Now, have I said that correctly? You sure have, and um, it looks like that the five hours jettison for the service module and the one hour for the LEM will give us plenty of time to uh, work any other checks we have in, plenty of time. All right, now the command module has been without power since Monday night, yes. except for brief periods. Uh, do we have any guarantee that this cold, powerless ship can be powered up enough so that it can perform the tasks it has to perform? Yes, we do. North American has been running a number of tests, as we have here, taking a look at the temperatures that are on the electrical system and many of the components, and determining, uh, and have determined, in fact, 
that uh, they'll be able to be warmed up sufficiently to uh, do the job they're designed to do. So that looks like a pretty straightforward uh, job right now. What about the relationship between this, this is the part of the spacecraft where the trouble began on Monday night, and when it moves away from the heat shield, the porous heat shield, is it likely to leave any particles, any broken particles there near the heat shield which could cause trouble on re-entry? Uh, not really. Um, you may remember that all the uh, electrical wiring and everything that separates the command module from the service module is in the command module. And as far as we know, absolutely nothing has gone wrong there. So the separation ought to take place in a completely nominal fashion. Even if there were small particles on the base of the heat shield, it wouldn't affect the command module during re-entry. There's quite a lot of uh, uh, extra heat shield built in just for such a... And do you see any problems in separating and getting two astronauts out of here and all three of them into the command module and separating the command module from the lamp? No, mainly because this is, we're going to use the same techniques we've used around the moon a number of times and certainly in Earth orbit. So uh, powering down the limb, getting inside, closing the hatch, and actually uh, blowing the uh, limb away from the command module is typically... Uh, a nominal maneuver. Incidentally, and I think a good point is, the minute that the limb moves away from the command module, we got, at about an hour out, a no longer any emergency situation. We're in the situation we've always been in when returning from the moon. With enough power in here so that you are back as you were on Apollo 12 coming That's right. in. So then it's a normal re-entry. That's right. The, the emergency for all cases is over once we separate the command module from Nevertheless, the it's never been done before this way, and everybody's <laughs> worried. I, are you worried? Uh, no. Uh, we've been doing a lot of simulation here of the techniques that we're going to use here. The crew has demonstrated that they're cool under the worst possible conditions, and the flight controllers have demonstrated the same thing, so I think that tomorrow is going to run rather smoothly. It'll be almost a routine uh, re-entry, if that's the word. Whatever fears the space agency may have had concerning the weather at Splashdown were dissipated today. A tropical storm moved 700 miles away from the target area northeast of New Zealand. NBC News will cover the splashdown of Apollo 13 live on television and radio. Television coverage begins at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Radio coverage starts a half hour earlier. The Apollo 13 astronauts and their crippled spaceship are now more than halfway home from the moon. Despite all the problems, one NASA official said today there's no reason why there shouldn't be a perfectly normal splashdown. But obviously, each event, each hour between now and splashdown in the Pacific tomorrow afternoon is quite literally a matter of life and death. ABC science editor Jules Bergman has a report on what happened in space today and what lies ahead for tomorrow. It's cold up there in Apollo 13 on this last leg of a harrowing journey for Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert. Bone-chilling cold, down to about 45 degrees in the power-down command module. So cold that all three astronauts attempted to sleep huddled together in the cramped cockpit of the lunar module last night. One man kept the watch, anxiously eyeing the instruments, monitoring their life-giving oxygen, water, and power. And it won't be much better tonight. The limb with partial power is somewhat warmer. 
tired, but with the worst behind them, Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert are now getting ready for the most critical re-entry we've ever attempted. Early tomorrow morning, a final small mid-course maneuver to hopefully plant the command module smack in the middle of the South Pacific splashdown area. Just after 8 a.m. Eastern time, they'll separate from the service module, where the oxygen tank exploded that aborted their lunar mission and nearly cost them their lives. They'll pitch the limb upward like this and may get pictures of the damaged service module, clues hopefully so exactly what went wrong can be found. Then they'll pull away with the lunar module and command module still docked. They'll do the re-entry without pressure suits wearing their in-flight garments. Next, they'll power up the command module. Its batteries will recharge today using power from the LEM. Then all three men will crawl into the command module through the tunnel, linking the two spacecraft and seal the hatches. Just before 12 noon, they'll jettison the LEM, unhooking the docking latches and using the air pressure in the tunnel to pop the two spacecraft apart. An hour later, they're due to come sweeping in over the South Pacific for re-entry, if all has gone well. If the command module is working as well as its instruments seem to say it is, waiting below the aircraft carrier Iwo Jima to recover them. It'll all happen in a few hours. And intensive simulations conducted by other astronauts on the ground these last few days say it should work. And it has to. Re-entry can't be delayed. Once they've separated from the LEM, they have only a few hours of oxygen and power left in their damaged Apollo command module. This is Jules Bergman at ABC Space Headquarters. ABC News will be standing by around the clock to bring you extended coverage of the Apollo emergency whenever developments warrant. And continuous coverage of re-entry and splashdown will begin tomorrow at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. All right, so now that brings us to April 17th, the day that Apollo 13 re-enters the atmosphere and splashes down. Now, normally, I would play some clips from CBS News of Walter Cronkite, but in a weird twist, the um, video on YouTube, the video looks great. The audio is horrible, unfortunately. But as I said, in a weird twist... I did find audio of all places from the BBC. So the BBC did save their recording of the splashdown and re-entry of Apollo 13. So this is now happening in real time, and this is how the BBC covered it. Apollo 13, 25,550 miles to go. They're coming in at 8,970 miles an hour. You want some idea just how fast that is? You can get from London to Manchester in one minute and 20 seconds and get all the way to Glasgow in two minutes and 40 seconds. It all continues to go well aboard Apollo 13. James. Meanwhile, back in space, there is just over two hours to go to that uh, moment when they hit the atmosphere and start the plunge down through. Uh, the crew at the moment are going through the last preparations. It's been a very tense period. And one of the few men on Earth who knows what it's like to go through that, to come back from lunar orbit and head in towards the Earth with your fingers crossed that the heat shield is going to work and you're on the right attitude is Neil Armstrong. And he talked recently to newsmen, yesterday I believe in fact, about what it was like up there and what he thought of the crew and the state of the mission as it was at this moment. If, if you were in the spacecraft uh, during re-entry, which would you regard as the most critical moment of all from the point of view of the commander and the crew? The parachutes. I, I think this uh, unquestionably the uh, 
the most serious time point in the entry from, from my point of view. And the reason is that unlike, let's say, you're sitting on the moon and the ascent engine doesn't fire, at least you have the benefit of time to consider, discuss it with the control center and, and uh, consider possible alternatives for getting that engine started. But when the parachutes don't come out, you're rather short of alternatives and considerably short of time. Armstrong, during your Germany mission, you have to pass uh, through a, a phase of imminent danger. How does a human being feel at this moment? Did you think about death? Um, no, I, I didn't. Uh, there really was inadequate time for, for those uh, sorts of considerations. I've heard people say uh, when they got in a really tough spot, they've had, uh, you know, their life story flash in front of their uh, minds, and and uh, I, I didn't experience that in my own case. Uh, it was much more like uh, a pilot getting into an inadvertent spin in the airplane and recognizing that he absolutely must uh, solve his problem and, and uh, correct the spin before hitting the surface of the ground. And all his attention is directed toward that end. And that was rather the way we felt. Patrick, one of the things ahead in the next few hours uh, part of what Armstrong was talking about, the preparations for this re-entry. One of the things ahead is the moment when the actual command module hits the atmosphere. Indeed. And you are an expert on meteorites and meteors and all sorts of bodies coming in. What kind of heat is that going to generate? Are we going to be able to see it? Well, you certainly won't be able to see it from here because it's going to be below our horizon. Earlier on, there was a report from Cape Town that the returning spaceship had been sighted telescopically, and that, of course, is quite in order. But this is in the southern hemisphere where all the activity is going to take place. And as Jeffrey said a little while ago, as they come in, the command module and the service module and the lunar module, all of which are going to come back into the atmosphere, are going to come down in different places for the reasons that he gave. Well, the command module, of course, the heat shield will get incandescent, as this always does happen, but you're not going to see that unless you're fairly close to it, and it's going to be below our horizon. We did see, wasn't it, 10 we saw coming back in, a brief glimpse of it up in the night we sky did indeed, just before but, dawn. We did indeed, but so far as I can tell from the, the calculations that we've done, this is not going to be the case now, this time, because, of course, for one thing, it's daylight. Uh, and, of course, so far as the service module is concerned, well, that is now fully fueled up. And therefore, when it comes back into the atmosphere, it is certainly going to make a very considerable bang. And if it were above our horizon, in spite of the daylight, we would see that. But so far as we can tell, this is going to be well below our horizon. Now, there is, there is one unusual feature of this, isn't there? That you talk, you're talking about a bang, um, the bang on the ground and stuff. Yes. But the sonic boom that, that is made by the command module is made in the other way around from normal. Normally, we hear a Absolutely. sonic boom when an aircraft goes up through the speed of sound. Absolutely. This way, we hear it when it comes down through it. Exactly. It's going the other way around. Of course, you don't get that except with a spacecraft. You don't um, get it with meteors? Yes, you don't. Well, uh, occasionally you do with meteorites, but don't forget there's a very diff considerable difference in scale. Uh, the average meteor, the kind of thing you call a shooting star, is a very tiny thing, smaller than a grain of dust, and that makes quite a display in the sky. So these things will be visible if you happen to be in the right place, but so far as we are concerned at the British Isles, we are not. And uh, unless something's gone very peculiar with the calculations of the service module, we shan't even see that. We hope they don't. Farewell, Aquarius. We thank you. So said Swigert when the lunar landing module was cast away at 5.43. They, of course, had much to thank that module for. It had brought them back to within but a few thousand miles now. They are 10,700 miles away. 
They're approaching at 12,500 miles an hour. The speed builds up dramatically. We are now within the last hour or so of this mission. Just before we look ahead to splashdown, let me remind you, those of you who come in, that the badly damaged service module was cast off into space just after quarter past two this afternoon. And then Sveigert said farewell to the faithful lunar module, which brought them back so very smoothly and perfectly. They said goodbye to that at uh, 5.43. And the three men whom Grand Control said not all that long ago were damned fatigued but sharp got down to their preparations for re-entry. Now, looking forward very quickly to the re-entry, the timings to watch for are 8.35 as they start the re-entry re sequence in motion, and then at 18.54, that's six minutes to, uh, to seven, the crucial moment at 25,000 miles an hour when the command module meets the Earth's atmosphere at 400,000 feet up over New Zealand. Then, through the clouds, splashed down eventually by, we hope, by the deck of the waiting ship, Iwo Jimo, which is there with its helicopters on board and it's been standing by since dawn. We sincerely hope that on this program you will hear the band play, you will see the red carpet down, and you will see those three remarkable men walk along it. That's our hope. James. One, six, I'd just like five, you to listen three, just a seven, second to what's going on up there now. Zero, five, two, three, six, two, one, one. That has been going on unremittingly for the last four or five hours. A constant stream of numbers, data, information from mission control down on Earth to the crew up in space coming back in for these last few miles in terms of a space, space flight, the last few miles to home. This information going up all the time because the only people who have computers at their disposal to sort out all the problems, to work out all the technical difficulties, is ground control. Up there in space, Lovell and Swigert and Hayes are coming in at the moment in a command module that is apparently working as well as it should. In the last few hours, they've lived through what Apollo 13 officials at Mission Control are already calling a technical miracle. The miracle is in those numbers that you heard. Mission Control have been passing up detail after detail after detail on how to handle a situation that has never happened before in the history of spaceflight. A situation where a crew are coming back in with minimum oxygen, minimum water, practically no power left, with three parts of a spacecraft joined together in a point of the flight where no logical organizer at Mission Control would ever have them joined together. A service module which didn't work for the last two days, they've had to keep it until just a few hours ago in order to keep their trajectory stable. The lunar module should have been left on the moon and at any rate should have been left way back in lunar orbit. That lunar module has been put through the kind of test that its, that its constructors never could possibly have imagined that it would have been put through. And it's come through it with flying colors. The lunar module has saved the lives of Lovell, Swigert and Hayes by keeping them alive on its systems, on its power, on its oxygen, on its water. And as you heard Cliff say just a few minutes ago, when they said goodbye to it, they said goodbye to it with the kind of feeling that you say goodbye to somebody who saved your life. That's what the lunar module has done. The figures coming up from the vast team of 400-odd men at Mission Control has ensured that as this flight came in, crippled as it was, 
the crew on board had a better and better and better chance of staying alive the closer they got to Earth, the longer the systems kept working, and the more successfully each jettison, first of all of the service module three or four hours ago, and then the lunar module just a few minutes ago, each jettison went successfully. And as it went well, so their chances of survival increased. They're left now after a, a trip that has included a number of technical miracles, throwing the flight book out of the window, relying totally on the men on the ground with a computer on board that they couldn't risk using except in one or two occasions when they could risk the power. Flying in a sense blind up there, they've come to within the last few minutes of being alive and well on the surface of the earth. And they face ahead of them those last few vital tests to bring them through this mission, a mission that Mission Control in Houston must regard, as I said at the beginning, and I repeat it again, a technical miracle has brought them as far as this. And if they land safely, then Mission Control can be sure that the people on the ground are the ones who have saved those in space. Cliff. We now begin to concentrate, really, on the recovery of this space capsule as it comes down. And our attention is pulled more and more to a number of diverse operations in this very complicated operation. The people who actually recover it, the aircraft people, people who follow it in and right the way down to the Iwo Jima, which stands right in the middle of that target area. The Iwo Jima, fully loaded displacement is 18,000 tonnes, fully loaded. Uh, she draws 30 feet of water, turbine-driven sing single shafts of 22,000 horsepower. She steams along there at over 30 knots. And on board her, at this moment, she's got those aircraft carriers actually waiting with the men that will go in for that rescue from the Iwo Jima. Lieutenant Jenke, you're in charge of the recovery operation from the frogman's point of view, aren't you? Yes, I am. Uh, we have three, two swim teams of three swimmers each, uh, a primary swim team and a backup swim team. And I'm the decontamination swimmer. Uh, right here we have Steve Jewett and Pete Carolyn. Uh, Pete is the uh, lead swimmer in the primary swim team, and Steve is his backup swimmer. Uh, right now they're going through getting on their personal swim gear and making the gear check. And this is just for uh, safety purposes. He has his belt on, his knife here, which we call a K-bar, on which we have a flare and a smoke. If we run into problems, run into trouble, any type of distress situation, we could uh, crack a, a orange smoke or at night use a flare. This is the standard uh, underwater demolition team life jacket we use. It's a, uh, activated by a CO2 cartridge, that size, yeah. which is screwed in here. Of course, we use the standard uh, frogman mask and fins which are the uh, basic tools of our trade. Is there anything special about the, the bodysuit? Is it specially insulated in any way? We found that uh, working in 85 degree water temperature in the South Pacific, it gets very warm uh, working in any type of wetsuit. Uh, it was almost like working in a sauna bath. And uh, so this time we, we've come up with a, a lighter weight, a thinner wetsuit that we hope uh, will make things a lot cooler. I don't see anything in preparation for repelling any sharks that might turn up. No, we don't carry any, any type of uh, shark repellent. All, we haven't run into any problems with sharks, about the only thing we do and that we can do in a situation where we run into sharks is, would be to uh, get out of the water, get on the collar. Get, or, get, or get picked up. Get picked mm. up, yes. On the subject of the collar, this is how it goes into the water. Can we just, uh, can we just take a look at it? Fellas, you want to come over here and uh, start 
deploying this collar here. Pull the it out. flotation collar goes into the water like that. Okay, yes, this it goes in just like it is now in this package. Once we get it into the water, the swimmers swim it up to the spacecraft, <laughs> start unpacking it. Now, if, did all this stuff that's going on at the moment happens in the water. Is this, that right? this all occurs in the water. And three men do it. Pete, want to over here, another way. The first thing around the spacecraft is what we call a bungee cord. This thing here. Right. You see this. Steve and Roger now are pulling out this elastic cord, yeah. stretchable. And this uh -huh. initially around the spacecraft and yeah. is hooked in on a D-ring right underneath the hatch, which is in front. Next, we pull around the flotation collar itself, which is pulled all the way around the spacecraft and hooked up again under the hatch. This is all, all occurs in the water. Now, where are you while this is going on? I'm still in the uh, recovery helicopter, uh, uh, waiting for the collar to be installed and inflated and for the rafts to be set up. After the collar has been completely attached to the spacecraft, it is inflated. Now, we use uh, two CO2 bottles. In there, yeah. I see. There's one right here. Get that around oh, here, get a shot of that. Okay. Yeah. Here's one CO2 bottle, and there's another one over here. We use one of these CO2 bottles, the primary bottle, to inflate the collar. The second CO2 bottle is a backup bottle. In case this one goes wrong. What's the fastest in your practices, or in the real thing, because you've done recovery before, that you've had this thing deployed and on the spacecraft? I think our fastest time is about seven minutes, and that was uh, really moving along. It's a cruel paradox, perhaps, that the nearer they come to the safety of the Earth, the nearer, too, comes the moment of perhaps the greatest danger, the moment when their fragile capsule must plunge safely through the atmosphere to splash down in the Pacific. When we were out uh, in America talking to all the people about this mission before, long before liftoff, a little while before liftoff, in fact, I was lucky enough to get onto the Iwo Jima and is still in harbor in San Diego. And there I talked to Commander Chuck Smiley, that's the man who is in charge, the pilot of Helicopter 66, the man whose ultimate responsibility it is to fly that helicopter in. Every astronaut who's been to the moon has been lifted aboard his recovery ship on this helicopter, 66. Commander Smiley, you flew the helicopter on one of those recovery missions, didn't you? That's right, Jim. On Apollo 10, I was the recovery helicopter pilot. My predecessor, Commander Jones, affected the recoveries of Apollo 8 and 11, and my present executive officer piloted this same aircraft when he recovered the astronauts from Apollo 12. So you know the helicopter pretty well? I feel I know it pretty well. What is so special about Helicopter 66 that it's always used to bring these these recovery operations to a conclusion. I think Helicopter 66 probably typifies this particular type of helicopter. Originally, the precedent was set on uh, 66 by uh, Commander Jones on Apollo 8 when it just happened to be what we in the Navy refer to as a go bird. It happened to be a particularly a good flying aircraft. However, this particular type of aircraft is, uh, is well suited for affecting uh, Apollo recovery missions because of the a very sophisticated electronics package that it has, which gives it a quite uh, a marked uh, stability as opposed to that that's uh, normally expected of a helicopter. This H3-type helicopter has some unique capabilities that I think I'll be able to better explain uh, later on as we look at another part of the helicopter. What sort of problems do you have going in to get astronauts out of the water? Do you fly in formation? Uh, do, are you very careful about who gets in the way of who? Is there a script for the whole thing? 
Yes, I, I, I would say that's, that's an accurate statement. Actually, it's almost like a, a ballet exercise. We have a total of uh, five aircraft, uh, five helicopters airborne at that time, a, a relay, uh, communications relay helicopter, a photographic helicopter. That's we the have, one that's uh, going to have live television on board this time. Yes, that's correct, and that will be a first for this, uh, for this mission. We have two uh, helicopters that contain uh, frogmen, and finally the fifth helicopter, uh, this recovery helicopter. And if Chief Slider will commence rigging our Billy Punit, I can go into some of the details of the actual recovery uh, operation. And Billy Punit, of course, has become famous by virtue of the astronaut uh, recoveries. But I mentioned earlier the particular capabilities that this helicopter has, or this type of helicopter. From this position right back here where Chief Slider will be standing during the operation, he can actually affect a certain degree of control over the flight of this helicopter. That is to say, he can control it with 11 knots of authority in any direction. I mean, the pilot keeps it in the air, and then the chief moves it laterally or forward or backwards. That's correct. I think if we, if we think of it in terms of being a fine trim that's exercised over the flight of the aircraft, so that standing in this position and looking straight down, he can put the fine tuning, so to speak, to position us directly over the uh, command module and the, uh, and the retrieval raft. Once this is done, then, Petty Officer Lange, who's on Chief Slider's right, will lower this Billy Punet down to the frogmen. The frogmen will assist the astronauts in, in getting into the Billy Punet, seating themselves well towards the back, and then Petty Officer Lange will control this hoist to raise the astronauts at about a foot per second to bring them individually up to this cargo door where they're taken inside the helicopter. And that's what we hope will happen very soon now. We're now coming to the moment, the last moments of Apollo 13 as it comes in, as it begins its re-entry. The best thing we can do now is just to listen and hope. The last few seconds down to re-entry. At this point, there's very little anybody can do, including the astronauts, except wait as they come in through the up, uppermost fringes of the Earth's atmosphere. The computers put them on course. All anybody can do now is cross their fingers. And they are coming in faster than predicted. They're coming in just about as fast as any spacecraft has returned from space before. The last few seconds now to re-entry, and they've lost them on the main radio contact antenna in Australia at Honeysuckle Creek. about now they should be going through the moment of maximum heat and we'll only know whether or not that heat shield was damaged by the explosion three days ago when they come out of radio blackout in just over two minutes
last estimate, uh, 4MAX-G was 5.2 Gs. About 30 seconds to go to the end of radio blackout. About now. 30 seconds to go uh, for blackout. Less than 10 seconds now, uh, we will attempt to uh, contact Apollo 13 uh, through one of the Araya aircraft. Continuing to monitor this Apollo Control Houston. deployment that he's talking about is the point at which the very small parachutes come out that then drag up the main parachutes. They have been seen before those drogue parachutes come out on previous missions, but today all we can be certain of is that everybody's watching for those small red and white parachutes to come out to signal the final safety stage of this flight. The main parachutes. Let's not anticipate. But the heat shield obviously worked. You should see something any time now. Odyssey Houston, uh, standing by for your uh, noun 67. Uh, when you get it, over. The shoot should be out. A report of uh, two good drogues coming up now for main shoots. Standing by for confirmation of uh, main shoots. shoots out. Odyssey Listen to the crowd on the boat. The mains, it really looks great. An extremely loud applause here in Mission Control. An extremely loud applause as Apollo 13 on uh, main shoots comes through loud and clear on the television display here.
venting. Yes, venting the last of the fuel there. You saw that smoke go up? Uh, we have a report uh, from the Iwo Jima that Apollo 13 uh, at a distance of four miles from the ship. Oh, my. Uh, the smoke you see is uh, venting of RCS uh, propellants, uh, reaction control system propellants. seconds late. No, no more than five seconds late. Three and a half miles from Iwo Jima. And they've landed the right way up. Helicopter going in there to drop a flare for the wind direction for the other helicopters. Look at the heat scarring on the side of that module. I think this picture you're seeing must be for the first time the picture from the television camera in one of the recovery helicopters. Helicopter there reporting one to two foot waves and a swell going from three to five feet. The crew there saying they're in very good shape. The retrieval operation beginning there in one, less than one minute from now. Swim helicopter one going into its first position to drop the swimmers. Here goes the first swimmer to put in the sea anchor. Attaches the sea anchor to prevent the module drifting too far. These pictures you're seeing come from the television camera on board one of the helicopters hovering over the command module at this time. Odyssey there, the crew confirming that they dumped all of their fuel successfully. Here comes the first helicopter with the first swimmer. And there he goes. Swimming towards the command module. Carrying the sea anchor. He is making his way to the command module. 
First swimmer there coming into the command module. And he's making contact. The Iwo Jima now only one mile from the command module. Correction on that, they've corrected and said three miles to go. Any minute, any minute now we should see, there, they go, there goes the swimmer. Two swimmers in there with a flotation collar, the collar that goes round the command module. They then inflate it with a carbon dioxide canisters and inflate it. It then keeps the command module in a safe position and prevents it from sinking. There go the two swimmers. You can see that, that bag they're carrying there. Oh, This one here, that square bag, contains the flotation collar, and in the water, that bag there will be opened up, and the collar will be inflated and then put round by the swimmers. Two helicopters holding station back there, and there, it looks as if the flotation collar is right round, Jim Lovell there saying he'll turn his recovery beacon off. It's been giving out a signal all the way down, just in case they land too far away to be seen. Two helicopters coming in there, one carrying the photographic helicopter and the other the air boss, the man who organizes what Chuck Smiley, the commander of the helicopter that will pick them up, has called a ballet of helicopters. A very carefully worked out script in which each helicopter does exactly what the script says. Here comes a helicopter with the men on board that will bring in the raft. And there goes the swimmer with the raft. Michael Charlton in Houston. What's the atmosphere in mission control at this point? Well, I leave it to your imagination, Jim. <laughs> Obviously, people are tremendously relieved that it's all over and uh, everything's starting to, to, to run down here and never more thankfully have things been, been run down. That, that last call, mission control, you, you probably heard just at re-entry time when they completed their final checks and said, and welcome home. I don't think words have ever been uttered more fervently than those from a, from a place like this, despite all the space missions that they've flown. So a lot of terribly tired and weary people uh, are standing around in mission control with uh, their arms about each other. And, and I think you probably heard during the, the last um, stages of, of the flight, um, when they hit the water, uh, the burst of applause and cheering that broke out from mission control. And I haven't seen that since the successful landing on the moon by Neil Armstrong's flight, which produced a similar sort of excited reaction. Everybody, but, uh, everybody here was jumping up and down too, Mike. <laughs> well, they're good. I'm glad to hear it. But, um, a little limb, we, have, we've, we haven't uh, uh, heard much about that. That presumably has ended its life altogether now. We heard a, a, a final call from Jim Lovell of she was a good ship. And so she was. It was a little lunar module that saved their lives and kept them alive for 
almost a week. And uh, that's, that's either re-entered now or, or about to. But uh, spare a thought for that little bit of complicated metal up there, which uh, saved the lives of three of these American astronauts, who shortly we should be able to see getting out of Apollo 13 some three days earlier than they were meant to, but safely at the end of the most hazardous space flight yet. And there goes the final swimmer into the water. I would guess it's Ernie Jenke, the man who's responsible for opening the hatch, passing in the overalls, getting the crew out of Odyssey. Of course, anything being passed into them on this particular occasion would be for merely hygienic purposes. If he passes in overalls, it'll be simply to give him a change of clothing. And he may not even do that, we hear, because don't forget that these men will not go through the quarantine proceedings. They will not come out wearing masks and they will not go into the quarantine facility in which the astronauts of Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 live because these men, unfortunately, tragically in a sense for Jim Lovell because this is his last flight, these men did not get to the surface of the moon. And there comes the net, the Billy Pugh net as it's called, named after the man who designed it, a bosun in the, in the Navy, the rescue net coming down there to pick up the first astronaut. is open and I would guess the first one out would be Swigert if he's sitting in the command module seat it's a big man it looks like Swigert Jim Lovell being in the Navy, he'll be the last man out. He's no doubt about that. Two out, one to go. And there, without any doubt, I'm sure, is Jim Lovell coming out. A U.S. Navy captain like him would not leave his ship first. All three astronauts now in the egress raft. A quick check through the astronauts to make sure nothing's been left behind. And now they're closing the hatch. Waiting now for the helicopter to drop the net to pick up the astronauts one at a time. Three swimmers there you see just off this side of the raft just in case one of the astronauts does happen to fall out of the net. Here comes a helicopter. You can see the effect of its rotors there stirring up the water. And you can just see the net coming down there. First astronaut up. First astronaut is halfway up. By his size in that net, he looks like the five foot and eleven and a half length of Jack Swigert. He's the tallest man on board. There goes the net again. Fred Hayes, the first one in. Fred Hayes. 
Nuna module pilot Fred Hayes first in. Second astronaut is halfway up. Excellent pickup, no oscillation. Second astronaut is in. The third astronaut is climbing aboard. Thumbs up, ready for lift. It must be some considerable consolation to Lavo. He didn't make it to the moon, but at least he made it back alive. Six now ready to swing around. Report there from the helicopter that Lovell's on board and he feels fine. I bet he does. The astronauts on board the helicopter moving back now towards the Iwo Jima. Mission control there watching as we are. Helicopter 66 touchdown on the deck of the carrier. Air crew support running out there to put the chocks under the wheels of the helicopter. They'll be followed shortly by the crew coming up with the ladder. Here come the steps. First man usually to greet them is a representative of NASA. And here they come. James Lovell, John Swigert, and Fred Looks like the Admiral commanding a Pacific Fleet there, and there's Captain Lee Kirkamo, the captain of the Iwo Jima, shaking hands with Lovell. I would uh, like to ask the uh, captain to say a real brief pair of thanks. The Lord, we joyfully welcome back to Earth astronauts Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert, who, by your grace, their skill, and the skill of many men, survived the dangers encountered in their mission and return to us safe and whole. We offer our humble thanksgiving for this successful recovery. Amen. Captain Neville, Fred Hayes, John Swagger. Astronauts moving away there. Jim Lovell almost nonchalant as he walks down the red carpet towards the shower, a rest, and a medical examination.
All right, and that's how the BBC covered it in real time. Now, this last set of clips will be from the three network newscasts recapping the day's events. Now, you're probably wondering why I keep doing all three of the network newscasts. Well, it's because all three of them together, you get a better idea of what was going on in terms of not only what was happening at Mission Control in Houston, but what was happening with the families, what was happening around the world in relation to how people were seeing and reacting to the mission. So the these are the three network news caps recapping what had happened earlier in the day. 38 years old, Denver, Colorado. The man who was not scheduled to make this trip out in Denver, the very happy John Swigert, Dr. and Mrs. Swigert, sent champagne around to their neighbors and to members of the press gathered on the lawn of their home in Dallas. And I suppose those corks are popping in the homes of the Hayes and the Lovells and everywhere else along Astronaut Row there in, outside of Houston. Every helicopter 66 approaching the deck of the Iwo Jima. There they are, Jim Lovell in the lead. And Swigert, isn't it? That's Jack, yes. Yeah, and then uh, Fred Hayes from there, yeah. Somebody improvised beautifully. We've got Tax's area. I must commend you on your navigation. <laughs> Welcome on board Iwo Jima. I would uh, like to ask the uh, chaplain to say a real brief prayer, thanks. Let us pray. Joyfully welcome back to Earth, astronauts Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert, who, by your grace, their skill, and the skill of many men, survived the dangers encountered in their mission and returned to us safe and whole. We offer our humble thanksgiving for this successful recovery. Amen. Many people feel like the space agency official 20 years younger today, but the greatest relief was expressed by the families of astronauts Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert. I'm just very thankful and very humble, and I just I want to thank everyone at Mission Control, all the men at Mission Control, for making it possible for my husband and his crew to return to Earth. Ms. Lovell, would you discourage your husband from taking another flight? Well, I always go along with anything my husband wants to do, and however, selfishly, I, I really wouldn't want to make another flight, but I, I don't really know what he's going to do. It's up to him. You would not want him to make another flight? Well, after this, I don't think I would, no. Is there any way a wife can prepare herself for a critical situation like no. that? No, no. I have never experienced anything like this in my life, and I don't ever care to experience it again. No, this has never felt better in my life. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Well, I, I would say that this is the happiest day of my life. I really would. And I'd say that Monday night was the longest night I, of my life. It's a wonderful beginning. 
A beautiful ending, but I wouldn't give you a two hoops for the interim. <laughs> In the midst of all the celebrations, space officials said that Apollo 14, scheduled for October, will not be launched to the moon until the cause of the blast that crippled Apollo 13 is found and corrected. Today's television audience, according to observers in Europe, may have been the largest of all time. Live pictures via satellite carried the safe return through Britain to the Soviet Union and 22 other nations on the continent and in North Africa. The Pope, watching the landing on television, offered a prayer of thanksgiving. Secretary General Luthant of the United Nations said, All men will long marvel at the unmatched combination of skill, courage, and spirit. And in Spain, they even canceled the televised bullfight. After the Apollo 11 mission and man's first walk on the moon, President Nixon said, this is the greatest week in the history of the world since creation. After today's splashdown of Apollo 13, he had this to say. I thought that the most exciting day of my life was the day I was elected president of the United States. And then I thought perhaps next to that was the day that Apollo 11 completed its flight and I met it when it came down in the sea in the Pacific. But. Uh, there's no question in my mind that, for me personally, this is the most exciting, the most meaningful day that I've ever experienced. I feel that what these men have done uh, has been a great inspiration to all of us. I think also what the men on the ground have done is an inspiration to us. How men react in adversity determines their true greatness. And these men have demonstrated that the American character is sound and strong and capable of taking a very difficult situation and turning it into really a very successful venture. The president also paid high tribute to the ground crews and said he will present them with the Medal of Freedom on a visit to Houston tomorrow. CBS will broadcast his tour of the Manned Spacecraft Center tomorrow morning. And that's the way it is, Friday, April 17th, 1970. This is Walter Cronkite, CBS News. Good night. Odyssey Houston, we show you on the mains. It really looks great. From NBC Space Center in New York, here is the news. David Brinkley is on assignment. I'm Chet Huntley, NBC News. Apollo 13 landed in the Pacific at 1.08 p.m. Eastern Time today, 540 miles southeast of Samoa. Its men, Hayes, Swigert, Lovell, were safe and well.
John Swigert and Fred Hayes. They did not have to be quarantined. The astronauts went directly to the carrier sick bay where they were reported in good condition except for extreme fatigue. Tomorrow, they'll be flown to Hawaii. Okay. President Nixon set aside Sunday as a day of national prayer and thanksgiving for the safe return of the astronauts. Tomorrow, he will fly to Hawaii to present them and the Apollo 13 ground crew with the Medal of Freedom. On the way, he'll stop off in Houston to pick up the wives and families of the astronauts. The president was so moved by the event that he went to the White House press room to tell newsmen just how he felt. Reactions, of course, to what has happened have been pouring into the White House. I've talked to the leaders of both the House and the Senate, Republican and Democrat, and to several other leaders in the country who have been calling in. Uh, there are no adjectives that can be added at this time. I will only put it in quite personal terms. I thought that the most exciting day of my life was the day I was elected president of the United States. And then I thought perhaps next to that was the day that Apollo 11 completed its flight and I met it when it came down in the sea in the Pacific. But uh, there's no question in my mind that for me personally, this is the most exciting, the most meaningful day that I've ever experienced. I feel that what these men have done uh, has been a great inspiration to all of us. I think also what the men on the ground have done 
is an inspiration to us. How men react in adversity determines their true greatness. And these men have demonstrated that the American character is sound and strong and capable of taking a very difficult situation and turning it into really a very successful venture. In retrospect, the last few hours of the flight of Apollo 13 went smoothly, but Mission Control in Houston and millions of people around the world were well aware of just how critical were the things that had to be done in that short period. At 8.27 a.m. Eastern Time, the damaged service module was cast off. At 11.43, the moon landing ship was dropped away, and Lovell was heard to say, Farewell, Aquarius, and we thank you. It was the moon landing ship's power which had enabled the men to get back. When the service module was jettisoned, both the astronauts and mission control, and mission control were astonished to realize how badly it had been damaged. And it won all five of that big uh, Is that right? Right by the, uh, look up there, Richard. Right by the high-gate antenna, the whole panel is blown out, almost from the, uh, base to the, uh, engine. Copy that. It's really a mess. <laughs> Space Agency officials said today that Apollo 14 will not be launched until they know why there was an explosion on Apollo 13 and until the condition has been found and corrected. So there will probably be a delay. Apollo 14 was scheduled to be launched on October 1st. Dr. Thomas Paine, the NASA administrator, said, however, that exploration of the moon definitely will be continued. We're visiting an incredibly ancient world, a world which was formed probably at the same time as the Earth, but which preserves on its surface the record of the first billion years of the existence of the solar system. There's enormous value to be obtained by understanding and learning about the whole origin, the, the whole beginning, the whole uh, place really from which uh, man and all life uh, came. But beyond that, we're also pressing forward because this is the place where we will learn how to conquer space, how man will be able to set forth from the home planet Earth and travel to many other parts of the solar system. We're in the first 12 years of, of the entire space program. It was only a couple of weeks ago that the old uh, first satellite that America put up re-entered. So in this period of time, all of the advances that have been made have occurred. I would like to point out also that in the course of this progress in Mercury, in Gemini, and Apollo, American astronauts have flown 66 million miles, and we have yet to lose an astronaut in space. So that we're pressing on because we're at the beginning of man's conquest of space. Just as in the early days of aviation, we will have accidents occasionally. We hope that with modern technology at our disposal, the results of these can be minimized, that the loss of human life can be minimized, and that we will indeed learn how man can sail on this new ocean of space, use it for practical applications, use it for new science, and use it to advance our technology. Payne also said that in many ways the space agency would learn more because Apollo 13's flight had been flawed than it would have from another perfect trip to the moon, precisely because of the difficulties it encountered. 
NBC News will present a special 90-minute television program on Apollo 13 at 11.30 tonight, Eastern Time. Apollo 13 was watched by millions of people in the United States and elsewhere. Live pictures were carried by satellite through Britain to the Soviet Union, 22 European countries, and Northern Africa. Japanese television carried it live in the early morning hours of Saturday, Tokyo time, and it was seen in Latin America. In some American cities, the air was filled with ticker tape and torn paper at the moment of splashdown. And the return, of course, was watched by the families of the astronauts who celebrated it in their own way. Two helicopters right over them, and it looks like from this distance on our monitors, it looks like they are floating upright. They are... The wives of astronauts James Lovell and Fred Hayes have been up since 6 this morning, listening to the progress of the landing maneuvers on a direct line from mission control. This afternoon, they watched the splashdown on television. Floating upright. Mrs. Hayes, who was expecting in two months, spoke to reporters after talking with her husband. She was asked how she felt. Marvelous. I've never felt better in my life. Right? Um, could you tell us what you said to your husband? Or to... Oh, it was kind of wild. All the levels and Hayes and his wife just were on the phone at one time. <laughs> so we were all kind of shouting back and forth. But just that he looked so great and we were so thankful, of course, for having that man. how she felt about the possibility of her husband going on any future mission. astronaut Schweigert's Denver home after he and the rest of the crew were safely aboard the recovery ship. His parents, Dr. and Mrs. John Schweigert, watched their son's return on television. After talking with him by telephone, they came out and talked with newsmen. Well, it was a wonderful beginning, a beautiful ending, but I wouldn't give you a two hoops for the interim. <laughs> what, uh, you, you watched it, of course, uh, on television. What were your yes. thoughts, uh, let's say, at, uh, at separation of the lamb and as they started in and so on? Well, when he got through with the lamb there and everything was on course, I thought, well, they've got it made. What was the was first that? time you had any re felt uh, any relief? When they got separated from the lamb and I knew they were right on course there in the corridor in there and 
I thought they'd land just where they did. Mrs. Schweiker, what was your reaction uh, as they were heading in? Well, when the uh, castle came in all by itself, I thought that, well, nothing can happen now. We're, we have plenty of everything and we're going to come in. Have you spoke Jack. to Jack, is that right? Yes, yes we spoke to Jack on the... Well, what did he say? Well, he said he was happy to be back. And he said they didn't see too much when they went around the moon. But that when they let the service module go this morning, he said, and they saw the big hole in the side, he said, we're awfully glad to be back now. Tonight for NBC News. In Atlanta, church bells tolled in Thanksgiving for five minutes. Traffic in Indianapolis came to a halt as people stopped in the streets to cheer. In New York, a crowd gathered in a park with the mayor to offer a silent prayer of thanks. And in the middle of the Pacific, a charred space capsule with three bearded men inside bobbed quietly on the surface of the ocean. The ordeal of Apollo 13 was over. The story from ABC science editor Jules Bergman. It was an incredible ending to an incredible week, a week that began on a note of near tragedy, with three astronauts battling for their lives as they neared the moon, then racing the clock for 87 hours across 270,000 miles of space to get back to Earth before their critical supplies of water and power gave out. Aquarius, the lunar lander that became a lifeboat, and Odyssey, the crippled command module, both held out. And almost unbelievably, Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert landed just four miles from the recovery carrier Iwo Jima. Here are the sights and sounds of that splashdown and recovery. Odyssey, Houston, over. Go ahead. Okay, LOS in uh, a minute or a minute and a half. Uh, at entry attitude, we'd like Omni Charlie. And welcome home, over. We can see the uh, the first chute has opened, and uh, Apollo 13 is uh, practically on the time here in the South Pacific. Now the three chutes uh, have uh, opened up, and uh, gliding uh, ever so uh, quietly down, just a beautiful sight to see. Uh, we have a report uh, from the Iwo Jima that Apollo 13 uh, at a distance of four miles from the ship. The smoke you see is uh, venting of RCS uh, propellants, uh, reaction control system propellants. They're going to 5,000. The floor of the mission operations control room uh, now crowded, and uh, there are visible smiles on the faces of the flight controllers and astronauts uh, in this room. chair in the control room as we had splashed down. Photo, this is the Ultima interrogative astronaut condition order. Uh, Photo 1, uh, Roger, Frank, Apollo 13, now, uh, as uh, conditions are okay, over. Photo 1, the first swimmer has been deployed. They uh, sprinkled the thumbs up in the water in good condition. Uh, swim 2 is moving in to deploy the flotation tower and two additional swimmers.
joyfully welcome back to Earth astronauts Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert, who, by your grace, their skill, and the skill of many men, survived the dangers encountered in their mission and returned to us safe and whole. We offer our humble thanksgiving for this successful recovery. Amen. Houston, Marilyn Lovell, after four days of unbelievable tension, relaxed and gave her feelings. I want to thank everyone at Mission Control, all the men at Mission Control, for making it possible for my husband and his crew to return to Earth, and I'm just very grateful. My family's grateful, and my husband's mother, and, and I want to thank all the, the people in the world who have sent us, all the people in the world who have sent us messages of concern and, and all their prayers that have been said for us, and we all have a great deal of faith in God, and this has really proven that it is true. Courage is reconsidering uh, taking another flight since this wasn't successful. Well, I always go along with anything my husband wants to do, and however, selfishly, I, I really wouldn't want him to take another flight, but I I don't really know what he's going to do. It's up to him. You would not want him to make another flight? Well, after this, I don't think I would, no. <laughs> I, it's been a nightmare. The president, expressing the nation's gratitude for the safe return of the three astronauts, declared Sunday a national day of prayer. Uh, there are no adjectives that can be added at this time. I will only put it in quite personal terms. I thought that the most exciting day of my life was the day I was elected president of the United States. And then I thought perhaps next to that was the day that Apollo 11 completed its flight, and I met it when it came down in the sea in the Pacific. But uh, there's no question in my mind that, for me personally, this is the most exciting, the most meaningful day that I've ever experienced. I feel that what these men have done uh, has been a great inspiration to all of us. I think also what the men on the ground have done is an inspiration to us. How men react in adversity determines their true greatness. And these men have demonstrated that the American character is sound and strong and capable of taking a very difficult situation and turning it into really a very successful venture. The president will fly to Houston early tomorrow morning, award the Medal of Freedom to the space agency team that brilliantly planned how to get the astronauts back, then pick up Marilyn Lovell and Mary Hayes and take them to Hawaii with him aboard Air Force One. He'll meet the astronauts at Hickam Field and present them with the Medal of Freedom, then spend the night in Hawaii. With their wives, the astronauts will fly back to Houston Saturday night. Tuesday, they'll tell their story of what happened to the nation, while space agency investigators probe the causes of the accident. Still to be decided is what effect or delays the Apollo 13 near disaster will have on future lunar flights. This is Jules Bergman at ABC Space Headquarters. And that's how the events played out. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, please like and subscribe. Give us a five-star review. If you like what you're hearing on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading the podcasts. Um, if you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can do have multiple ways on Facebook, just search Promenade Podcast, on Twitter at Promenade Pod, and you can email the show at promenadepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and we'll see you next time.